Hello, Tasting Anarchy listeners. You're in for a big treat this week as Mason and I were guests on the Peaceful Treason podcast. This is the release of that episode on our feed, Uh, so if you've already heard it, you can skip to the next episode. But if you haven't, there's some great beer reviews, and we do a lot of politics talk and just, you know, general anarchist philosophy talk. The reason I wanted to get this episode out kind of in the middle of the week is because our semi-sponsored Last Bottle Wines is having a big sale starting tomorrow, August 22nd. So if you have not already used our link at tastinganarchy.com to sign up for Last Bottle Wines, you can save an additional $10 by going to tastinganarchy.com and signing up through our link. And you will also get some really great deals on their big marathon sale starting August 22nd. It's a two-day sale, so even if you're listening to this on the 22nd, you still got part of a day and a day to go. So enjoy our guest spot on the Peaceful Treason podcast and go over to tastinganarchy.com and sign up for Last Bottle Wines using our link. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, what's up? <laughs> hey, you know, so normally we do a, a uh, we do like a, a, it's not a, it's a cold entry. Is that what you would say? Cold we'll open. Just, we always get it backwards, so I don't, I'm not even going to try to. Use yeah, it's, the it's a cold open. A cold, a cold open, which I I do enjoy it because although our last episode, what happened was we started in the middle of a conversation that I I hadn't started recording, but uh-huh. Will, but Will made a, a good joke about a minute and a half in. So I was like, I right, we'll just roll with it and I'll put I'll just put in the show notes what he was talking about. So, so every now and then it doesn't work out great, but uh I I like I just kind of like how it fades into us just casually having a conversation. And uh another thing that it doesn't do well is uh it it forces us or it doesn't force us, but we we end up forgetting to introduce ourselves and who's who's who. So you are I'm Jared uh, mm-hmm. of the Peaceful Treason podcast and you are I'm Will also of Peaceful Treason Podcast, and they said it could not be done, it would not happen, but today, beer and wine meet. Together. It's a fusion, a marriage. They come together. Yes. In unity. Because we have uh, we have some very special guests uh, for a swap cast with uh, good friends, actually, of ours, too, that we've uh, met on Twitter and met in person at Childerberg One. Uh, we have Jacob and Mason from the Tasting Anarchy Podcast, one of my favorites. What up, guys? Hey, so go, so go ahead and uh, introduce yourself, guys, uh, and uh, um, and then we'll, yeah, we'll go from there. Just tell us who you are. All right, Mason, um, you want to go first? I was going to say, so I'm Mason. Uh, one of my huge pet peeves of all of us libertarian podcasts is the fact that no one introduces themselves, even though <laughs> like Jacob and I are pretty consistent about it. But that's just me. So <laughs> that's all you got to know about me. No. Uh, so we're peaceful, uh, not peaceful treason because that's your name. So <laughs> literally, <laughs> it's not copyrighted. How so many of guys, those surbases really do I have it. already? No. Uh, so <laughs> uh, we're tasting anarchy. We're a wine and liberty show, mainly wine um, and some whining. And uh, my co-host is Jake, who will uh, tell you pretty much anything about himself yeah i'm jake i am also the the co-host or the the, well this is all weird just to do this (laughs) i'm the co i'm the co-host of uh, tasting anarchy as well i'm also the co-founder of childeberg uh which is my my big claim to fame at the moment and uh 
that's about it. You know, we besides we, being like as far as Car Campit is concerned, like the jump largest guy and buffest dude to ever exist. Which is which is weird because that's that like I I do know I do recognize that I'm tall, but I do not see myself as a buffest dude. I I see myself as very slender. So as I like to describe it, svelte. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's funny because like what a lot of you guys don't know is like Jake at one point was like just seriously packing on mass. And like Jake's one of those guys has like a hard time eating enough as it is. Just he doesn't he's not a super hungry guy most of the time. So like there was one time he was like, you know, what were you like two fifty and like most of it was muscle, but like also just pure bulk from like yeah. having to eat so much. Well, so like I mean, he was I just would, walking I, around like the Hulk. There was there was that like right right before I think you left to live in California for a little while, I was like two forty and I was down to eleven percent body fat. Yeah. So I wow. was I was I, but I'm also very tall. I'm six five, so like I was a lot bigger than I am now and more muscular. And uh, it was just because I was lifting all the time. And then around the time Mason left, I switched to running, and I became like 170 and the same height <laughs> and, and probably slender, lower body fat. Slender man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I've I've gone I've gone up and down and just depending on what I want to do, like, if, like I wanted to compete in running or running events. So like I was doing tons of the tough mutters and that sort of thing. So I, sl- I slimmed down because it was just easier to move oh, yeah. less mass. And, but then before that I wanted to do powerlifting. So I was putting on a whole bunch of mass and I was lifting real heavy and stuff like that. And so it's just I, like, I, you know. I had someone tell me something recently that, that just blew my mind. And it's in retrospect, it's so obvious, but so I'm, uh, I'm getting my plan together for, for going back on, on a diet and getting back in shape because I, I did my first 5k last year and I would like to do, uh, another couple in the next, uh, in the next six months and, uh, over the next year. And I've, I've never been a runner. I, I had never even run really probably only run a, a mile two or three times in my life. And so I'm ready to get back to that place, but I'm, I'm, dealing with an injury right now and I can't really work out. Yeah. So I was, I was talking to somebody about this and, and they said, you cannot really bulk and cut at the same time. Well, and I was like, I guess that makes sense. I, I yeah, never really yeah. thought about that. You, you can you really want to do, you want to do one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, you can do both. It's tricky, but, um, I mean, this is like one of those things that like I was really deep into this world for a while and it, I was never really that concerned with trimming, um, but you you can do both. It just depends. It, it's always what are you eating? How's your body processing that food? And right. yeah. what are you doing physically? Right. So, yeah. so like the starting strength. Like if you start doing doing starting strength and you have a clean level diet, you will cut body fat percentage and you will bulk up. So like, it's just one of those ones, like, because you're the level of calories that you're just burning. And like, if you listen to anybody who does starting strength, like when they're young, they talk about like, um, how to just put mass on kids. And they basically just start having like 18 year olds drink a gallon of whole milk a day because it's cheap. And it's exactly hypercaloric density. So that's what they're doing. Like, you know, so, but like, if those kids don't do that, they will just basically, body body fat percentage will drop to nothing they'll bulk yeah. up and then they'll just crash because well, like, whenever the, he told me that i immediately threw back in him i was, it, i remember in i think it was 2012 
when they were talking about uh, the U.S. men's swim team and uh, uh, the the Golden Boy. I drew, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Michael Phelps. Phelps. Yeah. Michael yeah. Phelps. And they, I distinctly remember them talking about his caloric intake. Oh, it's yeah, it's crazy. Long. And it was something like yeah, thirteen thousand calories a day. And I just, I, I, it blew my mind. I couldn't comprehend yeah. it. And that what's, guy what's had the, uh, no body fat. And no body fat. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The, the Rock, doesn't he do like something like five pounds of tilapia a day or something stupid like that? Jeez, that's crazy. Yeah. If He, like when he, so like, yeah, he, he has an insane caloric intake, but like, I think there's other things going on with that. <laughs> so. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I would, I would guess probably so. Well, and, uh, and that you know that's kind of to the the age old joke on uh, friends against government is like Masons and my first conversation ever was about drugs and on my side in particularly <laughs> steroids <laughs> and I I have a I it's not specifically that I have respect for steroids is I am incredibly skeptical about what people say uh, steroids do to you. With the, the negative sure. side effects because sure. I know I know enough people who have taken steroids. You've got people like Sylvester Stallone who is like almost like pushing eighty years old, I think, and still <laughs> he looks jacked. And like the thing is, is when you get to that age, if the steroids are giving you a higher quality of life, even if it cuts a year off, you know, I'm not sure what the I'm not sure why you would complain about like. Well, first of all, we know that they all lied about roid rage. That's not a real thing, but the. The other other aspects of it that like where they say it cuts your life expectancy and all that sort of stuff. Testosterone is is preservative in men, so if you can increase your testosterone levels after it's supposed to drop off, you're going to live longer, most likely. And then there's other advantages to having that much muscle on your frame. So like if Sylvester Stallone got into a car accident, he's much more likely to survive than somebody who has much less muscle mass. So I mean, like mo- most of the issues that older folks have is like quality of life, being able to get from get from a seating po- seated position to a standing position and from a standing position into a seated position. Everybody's got a crap. Everybody's got a piss. Yeah. So like the fact that we're not just like doping up like old people on like testosterone is just another form of the government going like, we want you to die. Yeah, basically. Absolutely. I could absolutely get behind a legalized steroids campaign. We should make a, you know, a Liberty mugs and a t-shirt that says legalized steroids. <laughs> that was always my, that was my big thing. Cause I mean, Ma- Mason, Mason's in my very first conversation when we met is they introduced me to Mason as the resident drug enthusiast. And at the time I was even opposed to marijuana. So I was like, I don't know. Uh, like, let's, let's hear your arguments, Mason, about that. I could get behind legalizing steroids, but marijuana, that's crazy. <laughs> and Mason's like, no, not marijuana. I think they should put acid in the drinking water. <laughs> Well, by by that measure, then all we need to do is get a get somebody into the wherever they manufacture Centrum Silver, and just that, <laughs> get, get all these old people jacked. You know. Yeah. What? Well, the the Help. problem is like with it, like this is one of those things where like we spend so much money on like you know statins and these other like specific drugs and things like that. But like if we did like a chemi- chemical profile on a lot of the old people, like a full like workup spectrum, like kind of like LeBron James gets, like you could really push like the age of a lot of these people. If you started doing it in yeah. their fifties, especially yeah. like, you know, like somebody not like somebody like Lance Armstrong with like that level of like physical condition, but somebody like kind of that body shape where it's like, they've maintained like a good weight most of their life and everything like that. If you started just really like 
tweaking what they were doing, like kind of Tim Ferriss style and like allowing them to consume whatever we had available and like, you know, with moderations and back off periods as necessary, these guys would be like 140 and you're just like, ah, well, he died of brain cancer. <laughs> Nothing oh, yeah. we can do about that one. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's the thing is like, have you guys, you guys know who Dr. Mary Ruert is? Um, she's pretty pretty big in the liberty movement she was a lot bigger wait there's women doctors oh yeah in the liberty movement <laughs> yeah there's yeah. women in the liberty movement yeah, yeah. And she, she's, she's kind of like the like the heir apparent of harry brown mm-hmm. uh like she was very close to him he he ran as the uh, for the libertarian libertarian and, and when i first got into libertarianism i didn't know this at the time but she was basically railroaded by bob barr and wade allen root and but she's we just a, talked about Bob Barr in our last episode. Really, really. <laughs> yeah. See, I was and actually we, I was actually a huge supporter of his when uh, I first came into so Liberty Movement. Funny. Uh, yeah, we both were. <laughs> yeah. We mentioned him, and we said we cannot remember anything distinguishing about Bob Barr, just that he was the Libertarian candidate. Yeah, I, he's, I the, just he's the be, Bill Weld of the twenty eight twenty. That's what we said. Exactly. Campaign. That's exactly what Will Except said. For, that's hilarious. But what the funny thing is, like with Bob Barr. He didn't go around shooting himself in the foot. Yeah. He was just kind of like, he was like this perfect middle ground of Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, where it's like, I'm a former Republican. I've got better ideas about things. I don't think Hillary should win. I don't think Obama should win. Like, he didn't say anything stupid like that, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, he was actually a really interesting candidate. I mean, he's not, he's not a libertarian. It's pretty clear. And, and I think after he lost, he switched back to being a Republican, but, uh, he was he was definitely for somebody who was disillusioned with the Republican side as I was back then, uh, and he was very palatable as kind of a stepping stone to that, and then opened that door for me to discover all of these other things. So, like, I don't think if Bob Barr hadn't been there, I don't think I would have crossed over. I would have never heard about Rothbard. I would have never heard about Mary Ruert. I would have I would have never heard about like like Sandra Spooner, for example. I would have stayed in sort of this like distasteful right wing Republican area for a very long time. Like I, I didn't come over because of Ron Paul. I wasn't even aware that he existed until I had already become a pretty hardcore libertarian. And uh which is weird because most people Masons in my age came into the liberty movement through Ron Paul. But Mason and I were, I think because we're both a little bit contrarian in this regard is we both were like, he is a Republican. He's running to be the Republican nominee. I'm just going to discount everything he says because I've already decided that they're bad. Yeah. And I think like the biggest problem I had is I had no way of believing that he'd be able to maintain his independence all the way through. It was just like, they'll kill him. You know, kind of like oh, uh, Seth yeah. Rich, like they're just going to shoot him in the back yep. of the head in DC and no one's going to do anything. So for me, it's like, yeah, he might be great, but he's running as a Republican and that you got to, you know, you got to suck from the teat of the Republicans if you're doing it. Now I see what he's done afterwards and I see what his campaigns were actually trying to do. And it's like, okay, yeah, no, that was totally the right move. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. So. I'm perfectly fine with what he did. And, you know, yes, I would prefer if like he would go up and chat, like if Bill Weld was actually going to be the nominee. I would prefer if, like, Ron Paul just walked in and went, no, yeah. like, I'll run again. Like, so just just so we're clear, uh, it sounds to me like, Jake, your gateway drugs were steroids and Bob Barr. Yeah. yeah. Whereas most, most people, the gateway drug is marijuana and Ron Paul. Right. So you've taken, you've taken a much different path. I, well, I did, I'll, yeah. I think actually Mason, this, Mason and I both did. Well, I, here's the thing is, like, I'll say there are two other drugs there. A lot of beer. 
and the, fact, and the that, fact that I kept showing up because Jacob and I were both at this time <laughs> in our lives where we were like, we need a new friend. And yeah. then it was just like, oh, we're the only two who consistently show up to these events. So I'll talk to him. He'll talk to me. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm always thinking about the weird paths I could have taken. You know, I, I, we've talked about on this podcast, but my origin story was basically um, a coworker daughter, their daughter was selling magazine subscriptions and they weren't like A-list magazine subscriptions. They were all stuff I've never heard of. Oh. And one just said Reason Magazine, Free Minds, and Free Markets underneath. I said, that's interesting. I'd been trying to to kind of get more political. Like, I think I'd read some natural, National reviews, some economists, didn't like any of it. It's like, yeah, here's 20 bucks. I'll do that. And then I was basically there for the better part of a decade, just a Reason guy. Okay. See, I, so I, did, I didn't find I didn't find out about Reason until the 2012 Gary Johnson campaign. Oh, I was wow. going to say I didn't find out about a Reason until like three and a half years ago, and I've been. <laughs> <laughs> that's, so. when I, that's when I first started trying to cancel my subscription, which I'm still getting issues. I have no idea what's uh, going on. Are you paying for them? Uh, that's unclear as well because I I actually went th- I went through my bank to try and reverse last year's charge because like I swear I've tried to contact them three times to cancel they keep sending me this magazine because I was also I was also I was getting two subscriptions I was getting in for like a uh, some neocon friend of mine from like eight years ago mm-hmm. so all these issues I was getting billed for I I do not know they keep sending them but I have not seen a charge in some time they've got some good stuff in there though occasionally they, they do they have really uh, good cover art I like yeah. the cover yeah, art yeah the like cover I, art I, every issue like goes in my bathroom like coffee table guest room I just figure maybe it's, someone flips through it that's the thing is like in spite of themselves they do have some good content <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so. yeah 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 well uh, so Jake you mentioned uh, the the word palatable uh, <laughs> regarding regarding uh, Bob Barr, and so mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting springboard into segway. Oh, uh, well, okay, yeah. Well, segway, yes, but overall potato, springboard potato. into the <laughs> pool of this podcast episode. Um, we that's kind of the theme. We discussed it earlier today or, or last night that the theme of this, because you guys sort of have a, a, a wine centric podcast, we have a very anarchy. Uh, centric podcast but we we sprinkle some beer in there in in the middle sprinkle yeah that that's what we'll use not not not, <laughs> not, not chug yeah, yeah sprinkle <laughs> uh so for this episode we chose a couple of beers that were kind of a uh, wine fusion and i'm about two-thirds of the way through mine so we, we probably better talk about this one that we're drinking uh, it's really good it's fantastic right uh yeah. you go ahead you you pick this one out yeah, I, I've I've sold this one for only a couple months. It's a, a fairly new release from Firestone Walker. Um, I've had their Parabola, which is their Imperial Stout. It's it's okay. Um, I'm actually more of a fan of their uh, Nitro Velvet uh, Merlin, but um, Parabola is okay. This is their Napa Parabola, which is their Parabola aged in wine barrels instead of uh, instead of bourbon barrels. So they so they've it's done very good. they've done this exact beer and the only difference in the brewing process was that they had it in bourbon and the, and this one's they did in wine. Yeah, I thought about doing a that was a, a que- side that by- was a question. I didn't. Yeah, I thought we might do a side by side, but I was I was legitimately worried we wouldn't be able to tell enough of a difference. And oh no, you for, you you for sure could. Oh yeah, uh, the 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 wine is going to impart because it's a it's a Napa Cab Franc, um, so like a wine barrel is. Like one of the things I hate about like bourbon barrel aged stuff is to me it just tastes like bourbon. 
Whereas <laughs> like, um, so locally there's a brewery called O'Connor's in Norfolk and they do a, um, a bursk or a bursk, like, um, coffee stout. So it's a Turkish coffee stout and they age that in wine barrels and that oh, wow. you can almost not even taste the wine barrel in it. You can taste that it's different if you have them back to back, but you really can't taste the wine barrelness to it because it's the coffee flavor is so strong. But if it had been bourbon barreled, you would know it because yeah. like bourbon and coffee, like the stouts, like they, they hit us like a really succinct note to each other. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say, Mason. I, I, that's been kind of one of the things that has steered me away from, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, bourbon, uh, bourbon beers, uh, bourbon aged, aged in barrels is the, the flavors just over to me. It's overpowering this. I get a, I get a distinct like aged in a barrel flavor, but it's a, a little bit more subtle and it's blended into the overall flavor of the beer extremely well. This yeah. is, this is phenomenal. But and- depending also on like how long the how many times they used it to to either age cabernet franc or cabernet sauvignon or whatever they're aging in it it said red wine and uh napa on it when i did looked at the review for it uh so and and what they were indicating was that it was probably cabernet franc just based on like when i was reading the descriptions and the the reviews online i was like yeah it's probably a cabernet franc barrel but if they if it's a if it's a one time use you're still going to get some of the oak flavors out of it so you're still going to mm-hmm. get things that are not necessarily related to wine yeah. but you're going to get like the leather flavors the vanilla the, the baking spices that sort of stuff and that'll be infused in it as well it'll be much lower than if it was new oak but it'll be there and then you're also going to get uh it, like you're going to get hints of the the well especially since it's cabernet from or or uh cab franc from napa valley you're going to get a lot of fruit uh, yeah. but the fruit's going to be so subdued because it's just the residue. And you're talking about these, you know, huge barrels. I mean, the barrels are not small. They, they hold tons and tons of liquid. It's, it's what, like, uh, 50, 50 60 gonna, something gallons. I was going to say, it's yeah. similar to a 55 ge- a gallon barrel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, it, it really depends on like, so most wine barrels are going to be that size, but like, um, there are some barrels in Europe that are much larger. Like, I mean, you can see photos of like some of the German like beer barrels that are, you know, way more gallons than that. Um, but like the, yeah. the as Jacob was saying, like we, there's a really good question about this. Cause like a lot of wine producers don't, they will reuse the barrels multiple times. And sometimes like they'll reuse barrels from like Europe, you know, like they'll, do these like different weird things. So like, it'd be really interesting to see where they source these barrels from for this yeah. because like it may have had a different wine in it. And then the people were trying to bring some of that in with the aging of it. And then, you know, like also how long was it aged in the barrel? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Does it say will how, how long this one was aged? No, but they're, they're usually, um, Six to nine months is, is okay, been yeah. most of my yeah. experience with with barrel aged beers. Have you yeah, tried this, this one? No, I, we both tried to find it. We couldn't. We couldn't find it. Locally. I was going to say, like, you guys must be like the only people who drink exotic beer where you live, and <laughs> but somehow you drink so much that like everything's available. Because like I went to, uh, it's called Grape and Gourmet in our area. It's, it's just a local bottle shop, and they generally they had it at one point, and it sold out in twenty four hours. Well, I can and tell then, you for for us, where we're sort of blessed is we live, uh, you know, right on two major east, west, and north, south trade routes. 
So mm-hmm. we have good distributors here locally. So the, the beers that we get, like Firestone Walker is a good example of something we just get a lot of. And that probably has more to do with the distributors locally than just the, the consumer base, honestly. Mm, okay. Well, that's the thing is like, you know, I live in the – like I live next to the largest by population town in Vir- in Virginia, but we're at the end of the highway because we're at the yep. beach. And it's not a arterial highway that goes up the coast. So like we have a huge draw for a lot of this stuff. But like I thought Firestone Walker only did like two beer types <laughs> until I went oh, into no. Grape and Gourmet the other day. And I was like, oh, there's like five. And then you rattled off. You guys rattled off like four and I was like additional ones I've never even heard of outside of, you know, trying to find this one. And I was just like, uh... I've loved everything I've ever had these guys do. Why aren't we getting more of this? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, what, Union Jack to uh, kind of their more experimental stuff, Luponic Distortions, phenomenal. I'd forgotten how much I like that. Um, the, if you can find Nitro Velvet uh, Merlin like on tap, that's one of the best beers I've ever had on tap ever. It uh, it cost me an arm and a leg, but it was it was phenomenal. You didn't have that locally, did you? Yeah, yeah. Really? Um, that are like most expensive beer whiskey yeah place. i know exactly what yeah. you're talking about uh that's that's uh that's i cannot recall a beer from them that i didn't like the union jack is is really good and they have a lot of variations of that if you're like ipas um so well rats so, yeah, i could have gotten you, union uh, jack as a, as a fringe benefit of this podcast of all these podcasts i've, I've been starting to slowly do the research into scene about a, an underground bottle share maybe with them with all of us kind of sending yeah. stuff in we, we, we the shipping yeah. will cost more than the than the bottles, but that's true. We, it, well, Mason and I've talked about this a little bit for like wine wine bottle sharing and stuff because you know wine wine is sort of the same way. Is that it, you? It depends on who the importer is. You, there's a lot of stuff you just can't get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing is like with a lot of the a lot of the so like if you guys are like so you know Hampton Roads has twenty plus breweries at this point, so. Wow. Like, and a lot of them are all bottle from the same people or like all can now and stuff. So like if we were to have something like that, like just from pure volume wise, I could be sending you guys stuff that like oh. you couldn't get anywhere else because it's just literally not distributed See, outside of the market. That That is exactly what I'm talking about. That would be so cool. Not not that you need a distributor to, to meet a certain quota to say you're either going to sell this amount or we're not going to distribute it there. Just like a uh, kind of like a. Some sort of a sharing, you know, like kind of like ride sharing, only it's drink sharing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could skirt the laws somehow and make that work, that'd be so cool. Well, there, there is there is some new – so the, the, a recent court decision that, that it's for Total Wine specifically, but it is um, – it may have wider ramifications for interstate shipping of alcohol. They're basically saying that states can't restrict cross-border shipping of alcohol. Uh, as long oh. as long as it's going to, as long as it's direct sales to a specific person. Now, I'm sure there's still going to be licensing and stuff involved in it, but once these start permeating the states and the states switch over or are challenged in the Supreme Court, um, then it's going to be much easier for people with a shipping license to be able to just distribute it. And uh, so, if there's some, if you can do something along those lines, and, and Mason and I, you know, we don't want to go too far into it, it but we have some stuff in the works where we're kind of like i'd like i'd like to get into the wine distribution business a little bit it's tough Ooh. here it's tough here in texas but 
Um, there is a lot of wine in Texas right now that doesn't leave Texas. And same with Virginia. Same thing with Virginia, yeah, where it just doesn't leave. But I would like to make it optional for people to try it, at least. And Do you think it's just because it's too cost prohibitive for those smaller wineries? I mean, is there's, I mean, there's a lot of laws. A lot of it is just, is just, yeah. you, it's, it's so like, you know, there's a, there's a site called wine.com and they pretty much ship to 48 states. They, I don't think they ship to Alaska or Hawaii, but most likely not. Um, their deal is the way they got around the shipping laws was instead of, uh, so they have a web, a website. And when you enter the website, it says select your location. And you select your location, and then it tells you what's available to you to be shipped to you. And the way they got around the interstate shipping issues is they made deals with wine shops across the United States to basically load their inventory into the system. And when you select something, that that distributor, that wine shop or whatever, gets a notification that somebody purchased it, purchased the wine at this price, and then they ship it because they have the ability to ship into the state that you're you're in. Interstate. Yeah, yeah. So it becomes interstate instead of interstate. So uh Texas, although they are allowed to receive you you can ship into Texas, but they do have very restrictive laws. So like there's mm-hmm. a um like there's uh, there's a website well the one I use most of the time is is uh Last Bottle Wines, which you can get a discount on tastinganarchy.com and signing up to there. <laughs> but uh that's who I use most of the time, but there's another one called Wine Library that's located in New Jersey and they don't have the authority to ship to Texas. And they're the only ones that have a deal with like these three distributors in Bordeaux, France that so I can't get the Cabernet Francs that I want from those particular winemakers in in Bordeaux. They're supposed to be these amazing, and they're like $11 a bottle, and they're supposed to be the most incredible Cab Francs you've ever tasted in your life. And you can only get them from them in, in the United States, but they don't ship to Texas. So Mason and I have been talking about this, is, is somehow get get it to ship to him in Virginia because they will ship to Virginia. And then somehow he and I will work out a way where, our, you know. I can get things it. Things happen. Yeah, things Bo- happen. Bootlegging. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, I make a lot of kombucha. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you can ship that. Yeah, you uh, can. Yes. You can ship. Yeah. Uh, you can. You can ship uh, heritage kombucha. So we actually talked about that on uh, a couple episodes back. Our conversation from Childerberg and I was. I, I just loved that uh, that whole conversation we had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, I, an, I another way, I, I work in the shipping industry, but, <laughs> but if, if if everything, if every type of drug imaginable is already being shipped, you yeah, just, you just got to not be stupid. You can ship whatever you want, right? Yeah, you yeah, can. The, and and the like one of the other thing things, is, like, is it is, just worth it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, another thing you can ship is glass art. So, mm-hmm. oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So sometimes, like somebody that when I go to ship something and they're like, "Well, what are you shipping?" I go, "Well, of course, it's glass art." Which is yeah, not, that's, which is that's which, that's very good. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh man. Uh, so we uh we typically rate our beers. Okay. Um, just we give it a, we give it a one out of ten, and it's very, I mean, it's arbitrary, and and we typically do it relative to beers that we've had in the same genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can say this is the very first beer that I've ever had aged in wine barrels. So it's, that that might not be true. You may have had some. Oh, okay. Um, they, it's they, it's getting more popular. Yeah. I don't ever recall having one, and this is a pretty distinct flavor. I I, I feel like I would remember it, but well, have you yeah, had it's, it's a the, wine finish? I was going to say, have you had the other styles of this? Um, no, but I believe Will has. I I have not. Will, have you had the the bourbon aged? Yeah, yeah. It it looks different, finishes different. Like 
Do You're they? Right. S- I, I would not have been confused. Do they sell it non-aged, in uh, like barrels, like so, like oh. just basically standard fermenting? That's a good question. I don't know actually, because like one of the things that I'll point out is like, like with a wine barrel aging, especially like a Cab Franc is a more aggressive wine a lot of the time, depending on the price point. So like there may be more that you're attributing to the wine than it's actually there. And there may not be. And like, that's kind of the problem with the bourbon, like bourbon barrel aging to me is like, it brings so much to the floor because bourbon is so strong. So like it has all like a wine finish, but if we don't know what it's like normally, it's hard to make that comparison. Whereas like the one I was talking about, like they have the, they have a bourbon barrel aged version of that um, Turkish beer or Turkish coffee beer. They have the standard and then they have the bourbon or the wine barrel aged one. So you can like see the whole gambit. So while, uh, did you get that? Did you find yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. So the one I've been referring to a couple of times, this velvet Merlin, mm-hmm. that would actually be considered the base. And I, I really enjoy that. I did not okay. know it oh. was, that it was not barrel aged at all. It's, it's, it's got so much going on. But then it's um, also nitroed. Uh, I've had the nitro one. I've, I've not okay, had so they, the one they pictured. Do it, as, they do it all. They do this four different ways then. Wow. Yes. Okay. At least four. Um, the regular parabola is actually, they're, it sounds, I don't know if I believe it that much, but they're claiming that it's aged in a variety of bourbons. Elijah Craig, Four Roses, Pappy, Woodford, and Buffalo Trace. I, uh. I would I would love to see some receipts on if it's actually got any Pappy in it. Um, but, uh, but from what I can see, the velvet rating wise comes out on beer advocate as a 90. Well, my, my understanding with bourbon is they don't reuse the barrels. They can't. Yeah. Right. So like, I'm sure like Pappy's just shedding barrels like crazy. Yeah. So, uh, I'm sure it wasn't cheap though. (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) So people would probably pay like an admission fee just to come up and like lick the barrel. I'm sure. And that's, that's the thing is like, you know, a lot of times we think that, but then, like, when you look at, like, the exit chain on a lot of these businesses, they can't give away those things. Mm. Like That's true. Yeah, like, because yeah. they don't realize how to monetize it. So, Jake, like, one of our, one of Jake's favorite um, off, off-air topics is, like, waste is a product. It's Oh, a, my God. So, like, you know, we've got a couple business ideas that involve, well, he's got a couple business ideas that, like, I just one day want to be able to fund is, like, taking industrial style waste and doing stuff with it because like the fact that you can throw it in a landfill is you know as far you know we're all anarchists here like government landfills are nonsense like yeah most of that's reusable and like recycling on the government scale doesn't make any sense but like recycling is a business that goes like oh yeah that old refrigerator there's a bunch of stuff we could use in it yeah and, and, I'll, like, and I'll tell you guys it. i'll tell hey, you can, guys can I, can I pause you sure, real sure. quick does anybody have a notepad because there, uh, there's like seven things that I I need to I need to bring up. I was gonna say we've got a computer, right? Like, yeah, well, like millions of notepads on it. <laughs> I don't want to be like clicking away in the background, but ah, um, click away in the background. That's so, made, that's to so, the liveness of it. Because the, the 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 episode we kind of had a direction we wanted to go, which was the the theme of being palatable. There was uh, this phrase that Mason just brought up just now, which is uh, that that waste is is a resource as can be a product and that's been something i've been chewing on for weeks yeah let, let I, me let me give you a quote on that and the quote is it, buckminster fuller uh i can't remember who said it but it's it's uh garbage is an economic calculation 
Oh, that's a good quote too. Yeah. yeah. So I have a I have a Buckminster Fuller quote that that initiated this thought in my mind, and he essentially said that um, that pollution is a um, uh, wasted resources. That's that's me um, paraphrasing, of course. But I've, I've been thinking about this and thinking about so peaceful treason. I know, I know we're taking a little bit of a rabbit trail. We'll come back to our rating on the beer. And on we'll, brand, on brand. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> this right. is literally like two podcasts that just like deviate to nonsense. This is like, <laughs> this is what, like before Jacob moved, this is all our show was. Well, I'm just, I just, I'm just going to float this out there because I know that this is, this conversation is a, a series of episodes all in one. But here's what I've been thinking about. Peaceful Treason tweeted out a, a, a retweet of some dudes, uh, with this ridiculous bong or it wasn't a bong. It was a bowl contraption where they hooked it up to a fan and they basically had, I don't know, 30 nugs of weed in this, in this bowl. Oh, they, I, I remember this. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and they, they got a whole party stoned basically. And I tweeted it out. And what I said was in the tweet is that the market provides and the vast majority, because the tweet got so many retweets, it, it penetrated a lot of, uh, time, you know, timelines outside of the anarchist circles. And so the vast responses to that were basically what an enormous waste, you know, and I started thinking, you know, that's a kind of a good point because when, when there is a market success, there, there tends to be an overflowing cup. But at the same time, the market is exceedingly efficient at finding value. You know, like what you guys are talking about, when there's waste, when there's pollution, those things can be, they can be recycled back into a, a, a resourceful product. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been chewing on this so much because I've been thinking about things like moonshine, which is literally turning waste, uh, in, in most cases into a very, very, very useful product. And I just wonder where has the market failed in this situation and, and why is it failing? Because the market is tailored to success in this area yeah well and and the the majority i think of the failure is that uh waste management is socialized so you don't you don't realize the cost of waste a lot of times and so there's no incentive to monetize it and that's kind of where like my idea i i actually sort of gleaned onto this idea a little bit when i used to do aquaponics and the whole concept of aquaponics is the waste of your fish becomes food for your plants and and so sort of this idea, it's like, okay, so there is a cycle of waste or there's a cycle of resources. And when you're producing one product, there's going to be leftovers at some point. And right. how do you, how do you economically process that into another product that is sellable, that's marketable? Yes. And so, uh, so I've got a number of oh. ideas in different places where this could work out. A lot of them involve aquaponics. A lot of them involve things like black soldier fly larvae and, um, and, and most of my ideas have to do with food, but like just, you know, when you, when you go to like the, the dump, if you just look around, you're just like, there is so much stuff here that could be reprocessed and used. Why is it not economical? And the reason it's not economical is because waste management is socialized. Well, that, that's part of it. The other part of it is like, um, you know, if you take like, like a very quick snapshot of the U.S. economy currently, we're dumping so much money into the economy that it makes products become, you know, it lowers the cost of products more than would normally happen. But because like inflation is happening so much, 
it stops being worth like attempting to repair a lot of these things because there used to be like there used to be like a cast off market where like my parents literally had a fridge that's less than three years old in like it was badly made to begin with but it's had so many problems that my parents refused to even look into getting it repaired they rather spend two thousand two hundred dollars to buy a new fridge and i even floated the idea to my mom of like hey why don't you get it repaired if it's going to cost less than five hundred dollars to get it repaired and then sell on craigslist the repaired fridge for 770 you make right. like 200 bucks offset just part of the cost of this new fridge that you spent on and she's like i hate the thing so much i'm not even going to bother so like like there's a big portion of it as, as jake was saying is like the socializing of like the waste management system yes that's a huge portion of it but there's also like just the pure government distortion in the market yeah. itself but that's, yeah and then, yeah so you know that's you know mason that's a that's a really good point and this comes up too is that is inflation of the currency and the way that places like china are involved in it is it's better for China to sell us like cheap TVs. You know, it used to be that you could go and there was a TV repair shop, you know, in every city or multiple TV repair shops in every city because TVs were a very expensive luxury item. And, but now it's like, I, I'm really grateful. I have a TV that I bought. Actually, Mason, you remember when I bought this TV. It was, mm-hmm. it was the second week that I had moved out of my parents' house and it still works. And I refuse to get another one because it still works. But, there's been many times where like I'll see on Amazon and I'll be like, wow, a TV bigger than mine with higher clarity and all that sort of stuff is like $300. And I'm like, oh, I so badly want it. But like, I don't watch that much TV anyway. So, you know, what's the, <laughs> what's the point of buying a new one? But it's the, the Fed has distorted prices so much that there's just no reason for you to repair your TV if it ever breaks or, or any sort of any number of electrical appliances. Yeah. And then on top of that, like the, the, one of the things is like, especially in like food waste and things like that, like you look at how many, like in France, they're so proud that they wrote a law that the supermarkets had to give away their food waste. And it's like, yeah, well, before that it was illegal for them to do that. So they didn't. Yeah. And then they're like, oh, the government solved the problem for the homeless people. It's like, well, no, if you hadn't distorted the market in the first place and had such high taxes and all these other problems, you wouldn't have so many homeless people and you wouldn't need these food shelters and all this stuff. And then also most of the time you criminalize the distribution of free food. Exactly. And like that. Yes. So, well, and, that, and not only that, they criminalize the distribution of food that is older than a certain date, even if it's not spoiled. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I did some volunteering at our local food bank and they just had this thing. It's like, look, if the expiration date on the can is older than six months, we have to get rid of it. And that's like the U S military has proven MREs. Well, not let leave MREs aside, you know, cause food, there, there are some arguments like certain foods don't actually last that long in cans as long as people think they do, which is fine. Like we can leave that aside. But one of the things is like expiration dates on medicine if you want to know when your medicine is actually unsafe to take past the expiration date, like I'm pretty sure the army has a database of that because they literally have stockpiles of medicine that they bought on the cheap because they were past the sell by date, but because of their government, they could legally buy it. And they're like, yeah, we tested it on soldiers. It's completely effective and like good for another six years past that date. Yeah. And and a lot of times they actually know those dates. Yeah. And with, and with medicine, a lot of it's potency. So they'll, they'll just change the dosage or they'll repackage it as a different uh, dosage. Yeah. And and so like, that's the thing is like the government's like literally made exactly like using waste product in another product, basically illegal. It's like 
you know, refining of uh, nuclear, like spent nuclear fuel rods. Like if they hadn't made it so costly to build a new, new nuclear reactor, we would have figured out how to reprocess these rods a lot quicker because we would want to be funding very small reactors that were basically living off the shed waste of the old large reactors. So, okay, so so you said something that's really interesting there, and you got into the energy just a, a little bit, but you said um, uh, the government distorts the market. Mm-hmm. And here's what, in my gut, in, in the way that I feel about it, I'm not I'm not an an Austrian economist, uh, although I do uh, you know subscribe to those ideas. Um, in my gut, I feel like that's the answer to these problems. You know, whenever, mm-hmm. whenever, whenever you say that, the, whenever a Keynesian or a statist of any kind really points to the market and says, "Oh, this is a failure. We need the government. We need to pass legislation uh, to solve this problem." Um, really, the, the reason the market has failed is, is not because the market is insufficient to solve that problem. It's because the government has distorted the market. And, but and the market didn't fail. Exactly. Right. Right. So like, but but the, but, so but the, the commoner doesn't know that. Yeah. But you that's know, the thing. I, is I like, was I was actually I was on a non-libertarian show last week uh, called uh, uh, Cork and Java. Uh, that was it was a wine show, and they had me on as a guest. And this is one of the things that I was explaining is that is I didn't necessarily t- put it in the terms of market failure and market success, but I said, look, all, all we have is that the government is distorting prices. And all of the price is, it's a signal to everybody else saying, hey, I'm here. This is what I cost right now. Does anybody want me? And and this is what the government distorts is that these signals go up. The government comes in and adjusts those signals, causes artificial scarcity or causes um, artificial abundance Fundy. when it comes to money. Like, you know, they put exactly. way more than they need in, in or way more than is already produced. Uh, in exactly. The you know, that's one thing, too, that people forget is that. Although money is a special type of product, it's still an it's still a commodity. It's still an item. Like it's something that people have that they want to bid on. That's what interest rates are. Is it's the price of money. Yes. So, um, so this is something I was trying to explain, kind of in in like layman's terms, in in the context of wine, is that we have a bottle of wine. It costs this amount to produce, and the producer wants to sell it for this amount. But then the government comes in and goes, "No, you also have to take this additional cost of labeling. You have to take this additional cost of distribution." In the United States, we have a three-tier system for distribution of alcohol, um, and so that adds on an additional cost. No, we didn't want this, 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 and this. And by the end, you have all multiple alcoholic products. They all have different prices based on the distortion. They've gone through the the prism of government, which bends the light, you know. So it bends the price, right. and and now you have a you have a broken price system, and people see Natty Light is like I don't know how much Natty Light costs, but it's like a dollar a can or whatever. Too and, much, yeah, way too much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then you've got like this really great wine that has an elevated price. So when some when like somebody who wants to drink alcohol, they get to the store and they see Natty Light for a dollar a can. And they see this decent alcohol, this decent wine or decent beer or whatever, but it has a higher ABV in certain places that distorts the price to the point where they go like, oh, well, that's this much more than this cheap Absolutely. can of Natty Light. I'll go ahead and go with a Natty Light. Absolutely. So, that, Okay, so that yeah, – So the, the one thing about that is like Michael Malice and several people like Tom Woods and stuff like that, it is unacceptable for us to say that the market has failed. We have to reframe the conversation yeah. and always point out that like, we don't have to go taxation is theft. 
you know, like slavery, but we can always point out that taxation is theft. It's like, right. no, I didn't voluntarily give this up. And the same thing, the market has not failed. The market has is continually efficient and it is continually responding to the signals. And who's the biggest person in the signals? The people with 7,000 nukes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, when, so you know, this yeah. is all perfect. The way that this is, I, I think, I think coming together. Um, but we have to get back to beer. <laughs> we do. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I rate the beer a nine nine point seven. Okay, I was gonna nine point seven. Oh, that's awesome. That's very I was high. Gonna rate yeah. it, I was gonna rate mine ten out of ten. Wow. Okay. And and, and now, here's why. The do you reason have a why, different beer? No, no. Same, same beer. Okay. I, okay. I'm, good. I'm, I'm I'm rating it ten out of ten because I'm keeping it in the same category of barrel aged. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm making this the best barrel aged beer I've ever had. Good. Okay. So, uh, I have to give it a ten out of ten. It's uh highly recommended and uh yeah, I, I it's it's very good. So but per, will per remind, Jacob uh, and I standard, what's the A B V on it? Oh, it take a guess at, based on the way that we've described it. I'm gonna go with uh seven point five. I wanna say Is eleven. It? Oh, that's such a good guess. Yeah, it's eleven point three. Wow. Yeah, so okay. wait, wait, I, hang on, I hang guess on. the no, fruitcake no, weight at yes, Childerberg. Okay. The regular version is actually higher at 13. Mm. Yeah. The, you're going to so, lose some to the in the barrel aging usually. So you I, guys – yeah, yeah. What, what was that, Mason? I was going to say well, you're going to lose some. I'm pretty – like I usually see like they're less in the barrel aging. Like they, they lose some in the – to the process of barrel aging. Yeah. So you guys brought uh, some drinks to the episode tonight, correct? Mm-hmm. Would you like to share with us what you're drinking? Jake, you want to go first? Yeah, I, I got three and I finished two. So, um, <laughs> so we pick, pick your favorite one because we're like, yeah, yeah. I, I'll go with I'll go with one that I think is the most interesting out of Atlanta, Georgia. It's uh, from Sweetwater. Uh, mm. This is the one tonight that I thought was the best. It's a G thirteen IPA. It's <laughs> yeah, it's mixed with hemp, and mm. I think it's interesting. It's been a really I, I didn't realize this until last night. I went out, I bought like the make your own six pack. And I was like, I'm going to get like a bunch of Texas beers. And then like, I was like, oh, this looks interesting. Oh, this looks interesting. And so like, I started buying these other ones too. I, I also have a text, a couple of Texas ones tonight, but I won't go into those. This one I, th- I think is interesting. It was, I think the most palatable. I also had an amber and a different type of IPA. Um, I forgot how much I like beer because it's been so long since I've had a beer. <laughs> uh, you're you're I, welcome. I, yeah. I think since Childerberg, I don't think I've had a beer. Oh wow! Um, and those well, were some no, that, that, that's not true. Beers. Yeah, those those were good. That's not true. I, we we go to uh, Turning Point Brewery over here in whatever middle town between Fort Worth and Dallas is for our. Uh, well, Carr keeps calling the Fagcast meetups, but that's not true because I organize them. And they're not Fagcast meetups; they're they're, <laughs> they're Liberty meetups. <laughs> but most of the people who attend are fans of his show. So, uh, so I, I have had those those beers. They they specialize in like. Uh, 10, 10% plus ABV. This one, I don't see an ABV on it. I know that they must have it somewhere on uh, 6%. Um, but it's pretty good. It's a G13 IPA. It's mixed with hemp. And it's not a double IPA. It's nope. just a standard. Yeah, just a okay. standard IPA. It's fine. Uh, hmm. I, I would drink this as just kind of like a... It's not a session beer exactly. Like In my opinion, like session beers are under 5. This is it's a little high for a session beer, but it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. Yeah, I think yeah. I think they make a a mango that's their session one. I think I haven't had that one, but someone was telling me about that recently. I've been, I've been hearing a lot of a lot of G thirteen buzz for sure. Yeah, it's it's not bad at all. They I, apparently it's based off of their regular IPA because on the back it says we took an already dank IPA and married it 
its hops with a strain of specific terpenes and natural hemp type flavors. Hmm. Uh, Will, that's not that's not the hemp beer that we had, was it? What the, was the the one we did on an episode was um the Hemperer from New yes. Belgium. Yeah, that was that was damn near undrinkable though. I think that was one of our lowest rated beers, or at least one of my lowest rated. Yeah, I was beers. gonna say you rated it low. I rated it fairly high. The uh, the fragrance <laughs> was amazing, but it, I could not drink it. Yeah, you, I mean, you know, high. you know, uh, uh, marijuana and hops are related. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you can bitter beer that way. You know, when I used to make beer, I would, I would, I always liked to bitter it with something else. And uh, so I would I bittered it with grind, ground ivy. Mason, you remember my ground ivy bittered beer, right? The the one that was ginger. Yeah, that was like it was nine undrinkable. It was it was medicinal. Yeah, it was a medicinal <laughs> beer. It was it was uh, super interesting. Huh. Um, but I also I also did spruce tips at one point, uh, which mm-hmm. was, was pretty interesting. But you can also do you can also do marijuana buds to bitter beer as well. And uh, it, it does add an, inter- an interesting flavor. I'm curious to see if anybody from Colorado is doing like straight up bittering beers with with buds. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah, man, yeah. That, that was my dream years ago. Yeah. I was a uh, yeah. I was on my honeymoon, and it was at this this resort, and we got sat with this uh, middle aged Canadian couple. They they clearly had a little bit of money, and I kind of got propositioned, not like indecent proposal type, but he was like, hey. You could do whatever you want. What type of industry would you get into? And this was five, six years ago. I was like, well, I think uh, marijuana-infused beer. That's something I would want to get into. And he looked at me like I was the stupidest person he's ever met. <laughs> and then I've constantly regretted. I was like, that was like my Shark Tank moment. If I had anything reasonable, I think he would have funded it. Do you think this guy turned you off to that idea all this time? No, I still think it was a good idea, but I think I should have thrown something out that was more... more uh, Generic. Oh, and mm. then allowed that to bankroll your butt into exactly. Idea. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's that's the thing is like you know it turns out he he was looking to like steal your idea and he didn't have any money. <laughs> he was just for, yeah. Hey, you're young. You know something. What are the young people into? All right, I'm stealing this. So, Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, 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 uh, so Jacob, rate rate this beer. Uh, what how uh, on a scale from one to ten? Like uh, written abroad. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would go ahead. I would give it like a seven. Okay, it's good. Ooh. It's not the it's not the best IPA I've ever had. I think that probably Spy Hop from O'Connor is one of the best mm-hmm. ones I've ever had, or possibly Great Dismal Swamp also from O'Connor, which um, is a black IPA. It's a black IPA. I love it. It's, yeah. I think actually Mason, I've been raving about that since like you and I went to Kogan's for the first time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I made you try. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like- you made me try it, and I was like, "Ah, I don't want that." And then I was like, "Oh my god!" But uh, so like, I will always have a great dismal swamp. It, it's it's changed over the years, year to year. It's different, but mm-hmm. it, it's uh, usually pretty good. Then they had a white IPA that came out a little bit later called Spy Hop, and I thought that was phenomenal as well. Yeah, and Spy uh, Hop's pretty much year round now. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I love I love both of those. One of those will. I, I haven't seen either one of those beers, so I'll have to I'll have to look for them. Yeah, they're, they're both they're both good, but they're yeah they're they're locally distributed in, in Virginia. The other one that um that also O'Connor, you know what? I think you and I just spent too much time at O'Connor's, Mason. <laughs> uh, and and actually, I probably went there more than you because we used yeah. to do all sorts of Comic Con stuff there. But uh, the uh, uh, how many hobbies do you have? <laughs> I have, I have so dude like. It's endless. It's endless. I have half of them in my uh, attic. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, the uh, the Otis 
Otis Stout that they have there. Mm-hmm. That that one, which I don't think is like anything to write home about. Really, I think that one's very good. I, you like a plainer beer? That's so. true. I do like I do like plain yeah. beer. Yeah, like just just good, just good like plain tra- what it's supposed to be traditional. Yeah, and you know it's funny. I'm wearing a Coelocanth shirt, and they totally gotten away from that model. But, really, Coelocanth yeah. used to do. I I used to really, especially when they first opened, I used to really like a lot of the stuff Coelocanth did. Well, all the stuff they do is good. So Coelocanth, guys, is a, a brewery that's local to Norfolk. Um, like, so Coelocanth is like like multi-million-year-old fish type that really hasn't changed in like a million years or more. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so their thing was like traditional beers. That's what they were going to do. Now they do like all sorts of crazy stuff because they've got to compete in the market and because there's like a whole bunch of traditional breweries and there's a whole bunch of exotics like – you know, for a while there, we didn't think like people would be able to do sours in the area. And then like everyone locally does a sour now in like mm-hmm. multiple ones. We're not sure how they're doing it and not like ruining the others because it's so humid here. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how they contain the yeast. I mean, it's it's got to be they've got to have like controlled vats or something like that. Temperature controlled yeah. vats where it's like separate. Yeah, like pretty much everybody does like multiple different sours. Like so like they they couldn't survive on that for very long. But I have a beer. Uh, as well, I have a beer that pretty much, unless you live in Hampton Roads, you won't be able to get. It's um, from Oozle Finch, so that's a brewery that Jacob doesn't know about. No, I know about um, it. We, I, well, I, I, right before I left, you and I uh, had you actually. I think you got it while you were up there, and, and we drank it together. Oh yeah, you know Oozle Finch. Name name three of their greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> so Oozle Finch is a uh, so. In Virginia, or in uh, Hampton, Virginia, just across the water um, from my house on the Chesapeake Bay is Fort Monroe. And so Fort Monroe used to be an active army station, and they've, like, wound it down. It's no longer an active army station, but it has, like, this really, really old fort from, like, the Civil War. And there's a brewery on it now called Oozlefinch. So I went to Grape and Gourmet trying to find the Firestone. I went to Grape and Gourmet trying to find mixed media from Dogfish Head because it's a like a wine type beer. Um, and they used to be able to have like all that stuff just kind of hiding out places. So they now have, you know, as much cans from the local guys as possible. So I was looking through and I'm a huge fan of IPAs. So yes, as are we, this is a boot scoot and boogie, um, which oh I couldn't even find on their God. website. What type of IPA Jacob, would you guess this is knowing you? Yes. A triple. It is a triple IPA. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. It is the worst triple IPA I've ever really? had. Really, really? Oh yes. man, that's unfortunate. Oh no! We may have the lowest rated beer ever on Cerveza of the Week. Well, well no, here's we did Yingling once. Well, <laughs> I I'm a big fan of Yingling. Shots fired. So, like, we should uh, tag Mark Mark Claire and uh, yeah. Brian Mark McWilliams in this in this uh, <laughs> in this. Mark yeah. Mark Claire is actually not a fan of yingling other than he's like yeah it's fine it brings me back to like my college days but but brian mcwilliams is obsessed with that yeah really i I really like we that's my wife's go-to beer um wow like my wife can't drink a lot of beer so like it's just too filling for her so like we generally like when we have just beer in the house um that isn't like something that i'm aging or something like that it's generally yingling um I'll drink a crap ton of Yingling if it gets put in front of me. I really like. I I enjoy it as just a general beer. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, the, Mason, you and I have had tons of. Yeah. I mean, we used to drink yeah. a lot of Yingling. The heavy, the heavy, I think, came from Yingling. Hmm. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yes, yeah, so this is a triple IPA. It's nine percent alcohol by volume. 
The reason it's the worst triple IPA is it doesn't stand out in any way. So, um, do you guys know um, Founders, the brewery? Oh, yeah, we love so Founders. Have you ever had Fire Dancer? Yeah, it's got like the kind of like the yeah, it's a really kind of like erotic and exotic label that to is firm. Crazy that you would bring that up because I was just thinking. I, I think I've only ever had one triple IPA, and I couldn't think of what it what it was. And I'm I'm pretty sure that's it. Probably yeah. I think so at, at, here at this house. Yeah. yeah, so Fire Dancer is no longer brewed by them. They discontinued oh, it. Okay. Um, but it is so the ultimate triple IPA, in my opinion, is the 120 minute from Dogfish Head. Oh, okay, of course. We've had that one. Yeah. That one is so alcohol like that's 19% alcohol by volume. I have seven or eight of them. It's ten dollars a bottle when you yeah. can get it locally in my uh in my bedroom, just aging. Like I bought, like before Jacob oh. left Virginia, they literally at the uh, Total Wine were only selling them a four pack at a time to people yeah. and once per day. I had Jacob go after work and get another uh, pack because I didn't think I'd see it again. And then for like a month and a half, they had it every time I went in there. And I was just like, well, yeah. I can't keep spending $40. <laughs> so I ended up buying a year's worth at one bottle a month. And nice. I, Will, so, Will's all getting excited. That's one of his favorite beers. Yeah. So that's my absolute favorite beer. Um, so like every once in a while, I'll bring one out and, you know, put it in the freezer. I'll get it super cold and then mm. I'll open it up and drink it while smoking a cigar. Um, nice. So that's what I normally do. Now, Fire Dancer, like Jacob liked Fire Dancer because it was only about 9% alcohol by volume. And what he hates about 120 minute is how alcoholic it is. He doesn't care for the the bitterness of the triple IPA all that much. But like the Fire Dancer, he doesn't mind as much because it's more flavorful and it's not super alcoholic. This is 9% alcohol by volume. It tastes like it's a six or seven. And for like IPA-ness, it's not super bitter. It's not super pungent. Like my wife smelled it and was like, I'm just not going to drink this. Yeah. But like it really doesn't, it tastes like barely, it tastes like, you know, uh, Jacob, like Hoptopus. Yeah. Oh, I do like so, Hoptopus a lot too. Yeah. So Hoptopus is a double IPA. So like when my wife and I got married, Jacob officiated our, our wedding. Um, so I bought a keg of beer and it was a double IPA that's 8% alcohol volume or more. So that's what I was serving. And because we did it in my parents' backyard, my mom was like, well, I'm not going to serve, I'm not going to have wine or liquor here just because you're too cheap to buy it. So she bought the liquor and alcohol. So I was only serving 8% plus beer. But like wow. that's, Jacob, that's more bitter and tastes more like an IPA than this triple. Really? So wow. like- this is not a bad beer. I wonder. Uh, yeah, I wonder of, what happened to yeah. it. Like, I wonder why it didn't. Yeah. it didn't get that. That's the thing. It's like it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. But it's, it's the worst one you've ever had. But it's the worst triple IPA I've ever had because it doesn't taste like an aggressive IPA to me. It's just a basic IPA. Now, I drink a lot of wine these days, so I'm drinking stuff that's generally over 10 percent alcohol in volume. So maybe like. If I, you know, hadn't had any wine in six months and I hadn't had a beer in that time, like maybe this would be super aggressive and bitter and all that stuff. But like my coffee in the morning is straight black espresso. Like, so oh, this wow. isn't anywhere near close to this bitter. Like to me, it's just not, it's not hitting any of the boxes. So like, all right, I, 
Yeah, I, <laughs> so I like com- this because we we typically we very very rarely have a beer on our cerveza of the week that we don't like. Only a couple. I mean, we can recall what three maybe that we've that we di- disliked. Yeah. Now it's not like you don't dislike it. It's just not on that echelon. But yeah, that's how that's, that's it, how our rating system works. You've got to compare it to in that yeah, same. Yeah. So uh, like that's that the thing. It's like I will give it a five because okay. they tried. And that's the big thing for me, like, a lot of the times. Like, Natty Ice, they make a consistent product. It's not one I care for, but I would still rate that a five because they continually produce it, and they hit the mark each time. Something something says a, a lot about your entire rating system that a, a Natty Ice is on the same par as well. <laughs> but that's the thing is, like, but that's where, for basic beer, it's a five. Yingling's a ten on basic beer. On triple IPAs, this is a five. If you were not, if I wasn't using your guys' scale, this is a seven. Natty Ice is a zero. Yeah. So using your guys' okay. scale, like, because the big thing I always have to look at is like, and Jacob and I talk about this a lot with wine, is when a lot of the wines we get are small producers, they don't have a consistent product because they're, they're hit with such variable things. Where like Franzia, they do everything to have the wine be consistent. So Natty yeah, Ice consistently produces the same thing, which is very difficult on the volume that they're producing. So for like what it is, it's a five. But if you're asking me on a pure like Mason rate this without anyone else's objective, it's a zero. Okay. This is a seven on that. All on right. your guys' scale, this is a five because like I have eight, 120 minutes in my house. That I much rather be drinking <laughs> and Fire Dancer, which is the best triple IPA for anybody that's not me, oh, in oh. my opinion. I didn't realize that you were rating the Firewalker above the no Fire Dancer, not I'm Walker. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. We were no, no, no. Fire Dancer is better for everyone else but me. Oh, I because see what you're saying. Okay. it is 120 minute is so alcoholic that it has the heavy taste of alcohol to it and. The triple IPA, which I love, that's just the pinnacle to me. Yeah. Whereas most people don't like the heavy alcohol flavor in beer, so Fire Dancer is kind of that. Like this was the best triple IPA, yeah, for most people. Well, and, Whereas, and that's you know, you know, Mason talking about that higher alcohol in beer is is something that made me reluctant for years to get into wine. But it's mm-hmm. it's just so different in wine. But you're right. It, like the hundred the hundred and twenty minute, which I always call hundred ninety minute for some reason. Um, <laughs> the hundred and twenty minute to me is just it's so unpalatable. Yeah, it's just like this the to bring it back. Yeah, there, there's no <laughs> there's no like the bitterness is there, but it's like there's nothing that is going to override Come the, the alcohol flavor. The alcohol yeah. flavor to me. Now the other one, so from um so it's called Reaver Beach Brewing, which is the one that makes the Hoptopus. They also have what's called the Kraken, which is a triple IPA. That's just under Fire Dancer, in my opinion, because Fire Dancer was more polished than the Kraken. I like the Kraken because it's like kind of wild, and I enjoy it very much. Plus, it's local. Whereas Fire Dancer, like it was a very polished beer because most things Founders does is just like so polished. They they make no mistakes. I, I, I haven't had a mistake from them. So yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So we we have we also have another dogfish head that we want to share. But before we get to that, um, 
I, I kind of want to bring this back to the palatable conversation. Do you have? Do either of you have uh, closing points on your alcohols that you want to uh, that that you want to say before we move back into a different discussion? Other than my disappointment for finishing the glass, nope. <laughs> I, I, I think I should have done a wine. And I could have given you guys some more information because I'm so off my 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 beer like analysis palette or whatever. Like I, I, I drank these and I was like, I forgot I like beer a lot, but I also have yeah. nothing to add. Oh, listen, listen. I we have a cerveza of the week every episode, and I am not I'm not as eloquent. I haven't read enough to understand my own palate well enough to be able to articulate the things that that, that are happening to my tongue. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Does that make sense? Because I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ta- it's a talent in and of itself. To it be it able is really why what our biggest concern and one of the things yes. that if you listen it's to hard. that first episode of our show where we ramble on for like an hour and a half yeah. drunkenly, it's that's wet. most of us going like we're not going to be able to describe what we're tasting. And and you guys have done phenomenal at, at improving your your skill and your talent in that, but it is very very hard to translate what's happening on your tongue into language. Yeah, which is it kind is. of ironic because you do both of those things with your tongue. Yeah, yeah, that's but, true. Uh, and and as you drink more to get like more information, your tongue becomes less useful. Mm. That's so funny. That's and, so and you true. Kill the uh, kill the brain that's, cells that would help with the vocabulary. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's right. the true irony of it all. Well, to bring it to bring it back to the conversation of uh, the the liberty anarchist uh, anarchist movement, as we were talking about before, and Mason said it was kind of talking about how you frame it and and how you just dis- discuss this. Well, first let me let me say the idea that I had behind this whole episode because you guys have sort of a the wine centric and we have the the beer uh, the feature on our episode. I I thought it would be cool to talk about. Uh, the idea of uh, palatable ideas and specifically uh, surrounding libertarianism and anarchism uh, and how you would make it more palatable in this in this time that we're in right now, kind of watching the democratic debates and people are getting back into that flow of, you know, just just the commoner political understanding of of the world around them it, it for us i think and and you probably can relate it's it's you're you're at a party right this is the analogy and you're drinking these good beers and good wines that we're talking about and everybody else the vast majority is drinking natty light that's what it feels like to be us sometimes and that's kind of why i like this analogy is the palate shifts and how the question becomes how do you encourage someone to try something that is so much different than natty light yeah yeah that that's especially a, that's a, especially a, when you know it's better yeah you know you, you, does that make sense it's, it it's, makes it's perfect hard. sense it, it it does and i think that you know mason you'll correct me if i'm wrong on this is as i think both you and i have gone through a lot of iterations you know one of my focuses even since high school has been how do I engage other people in thinking differently about what's going on? So, like, you know, my just briefly my backstory or whatever was I ran the Young Republicans in high school. And my sophomore year in high school, I realized the war in Iraq was not going to end. And that was kind of my, like, click in the brain or whatever. I was like, this is not what was promised to me, but I'm still conservative. What do I do? And I, so I resigned from being the leader of the Young Republicans. I started a new organization called Yak, 
and I was like, well, I, I, everybody's going to follow me, of course, because I'm right. And, and I uh, thought, I thought deeper about this and like, it ended up being like me and this one other guy. And, uh, welcome to your new life. Exactly. Exactly. It, it, it had prepared <laughs> me for libertarianism. So, and that's sort of where I got, but from that moment on, I started, I, I have always been self-reflective and I went, okay, I did this thing. It was a huge step out of my comfort zone and my boundaries. Why did other people not understand it? And and I've been self-reflecting on that since since high school. And you know, how how long have Mason, how long have you and I been out of high school? Like fourteen years, fifteen years? Uh I graduated in oh five. So fourteen, you graduated in six, six so thirteen. So three. Yeah. 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 So thirteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> three. And I thought I think a lot of uh, libertarians and anarchists, once they get to this stage where many of us are in, in this little circle of our friends, is it, it's maybe not easy, but it's tempting to look at your – to have a little bit of a narcissistic viewpoint. Yeah. Like, oh, absolutely. This is obviously right. I've spent so much time analyzing and thinking and chewing on this. I mean every single day thinking about it. This is morally right. It's economically right. How, how do these people not understand this? And so you, you start to kind of, it, it's tempting to put yourself on a pedestal, but I think it, it's important to kind of back yourself down. Yes. Bring yourself to, to, to an emp- a place of empathy. But I still find it very, very difficult to make the ideas that I chew on daily palatable to a normal person who's, right. who's consuming Fox News and CNN. Exactly. Well, yes, it is. It, so, is, it is difficult. Well, this is like kind of the classic difference between jake and i jake is like meditated on this and reflects on this and like i think that reflects his religious background on like he's vetted this concept in his life whereas i was just like no that all makes sense like (laughs) no no pure additional thinking and stuff like that so like this is one of those ones like i've been listening to like a lot of like real estate investing podcasts and things like that and like one of the big things is showing somebody that you're right is like pissing on their shoes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You like, yeah, you may have been right. They may have had fire ants on their shoes. You may have like their the leather on their shoes may have needed your urine, whatever. You still pissed on their shoes. Right. So that we get stuck in this concept of like, well, we have to show people we're right. Well, that's what everyone else is doing. Whereas like if we simply step back and kind of like, you know, kind of like a Timothy Leary thing, like tune in, like turn on, drop out, like we should be looking at how do we move the needle forward in our own lives and by leading lives of good example of high repute in of success and being there with a kind and helping hand not like, you know, giving, you know, somebody like a, you know, a million dollars cuz they're they're down on their luck, but like, you know, kind words, advice, like help and support when you can, you're going to build a better world. And when you show and lead like with a good example, like generally you're going to find more people listen to your message. It's like why was Ron Paul so powerful? 
It wasn't because he was sitting there going up to somebody in the street and going, you Antifa so-and-so, you shouldn't be beating on this poor, you know, leftist idiot who doesn't know that they stand for the same things that you stand for. He was up there talking and living by example and going like, yeah, I've been in this the Congress for this long. Look at my voting record. Right. You're you're not going to find somebody better. And if you don't want to listen to me, that's fine. Bye. So I really love that idea. And that's kind of the idea. I think it was a Gandhi quote where he said, be the change you wish to see in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of right. The the individualist approach to every single individual within the marketplace, within society can make meaningful change. Uh, that that's sort of the beauty of of what um, the market is and why we believe in the market, right? Is because you can make individual choices that impact the rest of society. Um, and so I think that's what happens when you make a choice. Not only are you an example, not only are you um, creating demand for your lifestyle, not only are you uh, becoming sort of an, an influencer based on your decisions, um, many people become sort of leaders. So I, I love the individualist side, but even I'm, I'm thinking a little bit more big picture, like as, as a movement, yes, these big ideas that the, the larger, the ANCAPs, you know, libertarians have, which are, you know, very, very pro aggressively pro freedom, mm -hmm. uh, radi radically peaceful. Th these big ideas for some reason tend to not be, palatable and I, and I look at examples like something something like climate change mm -hmm. climate change i think for me personally i and the reason i'm bringing up climate change as, as the first example is because i think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier as far as uh waste and pollution being a potential uh you know product that can be brought into the marketplace for me i don't worry about climate change all that much Right. Because mm -hmm. I, I believe that the market can solve this. And I believe that the market is solving this. I'm actually trying to get somebody on the podcast. I'm, I don't want to say who, but a really exciting guest. Um, Elon Musk. <laughs> Bob Murphy. That's who I immediately. Um, that, that is, that is actively involved in, in, in solving this from the market side, not through legislation. And so I, so not Elon Musk. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I tend to be. Not too worried about it, but that doesn't mean that I don't see it as an issue, and it doesn't mean that I can't build a bridge with people that really care about climate change. Yeah, and we actually, and you I, know, Mason and I talk about climate change on our show occasionally. And 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 I think that I think that largely libertarians and anarchists are at, fail at building the bridge, build, building that bridge with yeah. people that care about climate change. Yes, um, have you have you guys ever read? Uh, Secrets of Libertarian Persuasion by uh, Michael Cloud. No. Okay, so this is a book that uh, actually Mason, uh, remember Bobby Lawson? Mm -hmm. Bobby Lawson turned me on Bobby to this Lawson. book. Bobby Lawson, yeah. So he turned me on to this book, and it is it. It's actually it was a it was a great it was a back in my minarchist days. It was a doorway opened into empathizing with what was important to other people. And trying to figure out a way to frame your what your concerns are in a way that would make them care about it. Yeah, right. That's that's great. Yeah. So so one of the examples he get, so one of the things that Mason, you've probably heard me bring this up a lot is that libertarians tend because you're right. We we are right. We're correct on economics. We're correct on uh, morality. Usually, we're correct on a lot of different things. And it, it's and also 
we tend to be actually my sister my, my not my sister my my uh, wife and I, uh, I did that the other day that was a big argument yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so we uh we've we've noticed this about a lot of libertarians is do you, are you guys familiar with myers briggs personality tests yes okay yes. so most libertarians tend to be int types so yep. intp or intj um and they are not particularly receptive to other people and in a lot of in a lot of cases now i am intp but i i can be incredibly empathetic it's just it's just shut down in me a lot of times so uh one of the examples that that uh, Michael Cloud gives in Secrets of Libertarian Persuasion is he says like so think of these two situations you go you've got your booth set up at a college and you're trying to recruit people to end social security right and somebody comes up and they go well my grandma's on social security and you go well fuck your grandma we don't care about her and we're ending social security yeah so how how persuasive is that not very for, for that individual mm-hmm. yeah for me, I agree yeah yeah exactly well I agree with it too but we're already predisposed <laughs> we're already pre- we're already predisposed to agree with it but for right. the average citizen uh, the that argument is not persuasive in the least bit the the more persuasive argument would be to set up a booth that says um, elevate the living standards of elderly people. Yeah. And to get people to come over and go like, look, these are the problems with Social Security. These are this is what Social Security does. It's going to cause your you problems and it currently causes your grandma problems. Don't you want your grandma to live in a better way? I can see you at this booth wearing a shirt that says legalized steroids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, forget, forget Social Security. We need super super steroids. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? It would be great. Yes. You know, right now I've had this argument with my family before. Right now there is a supplement that is illegal by the FDA that I've asked my family to let me give my grandma because it repairs DNA and it's been clinically shown to repair DNA and there's a lot of other countries that allow it. And I was like, look, I can get this bootleg. We can give it to grandma and we can extend her life. Can, can you say what it is? Uh, I would have to look up the name of it. It's like some okay. sort of scientific name. Um, it's like blah, 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 chemical compound, blah, blah, blah. There is chemical actually, there's a legal yeah. version of it called Ethereum. Let me look look up what it's called. Ethereum. Well, that's a cryptocurrency. There's also a cryptocurrency called <laughs> Ethereum. Um, True. So like, while, while you're looking that up, I just want to say, I completely agree with this, and, I, and I'm probably going to have to read that book. Because it's very good. That, that's something that I've been chewing on and, and just thinking about the, these hot-button issues like, like you know, healthcare, obviously, completely agree with you you kind of have to reframe that because we of course we don't want to socialize healthcare, but when the vast majority of other people whether they be on the right or the left side of the you know uh three by five uh uh index card of allowable opinion in in the political spectrum yeah of course all of them disagree with it but what we're really proposing is better healthcare, better access to healthcare more cost effective healthcare it's it, it it's not like we want to make it we don't want we don't want to see people die we want to see people have a better quality of life but we don't really communicate that well well i think and another big, thing you know, go ahead mason oh well, I, I think the biggest thing that we have an issue with is like something that you know jacob and i will point out quite frequently is we're not actually talking like most of the time they're not talking about healthcare and this is J- jacob's big thing is they're not speaking the same language you're speaking right, anymore. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And so like the biggest issue that we have is we're, and I, this is something that comes up on Tom Woods, Jason Stapleton is talking about it. 
we're at the starting line arguing about the difference between one, two, three, go and one, two, three. Or, or and, asking or asking somebody at the party, what's the IBU of your natty light? Yeah. Or, you know, like, you know, so like we're, we're concerned, you know, we're, we're literally asking them to loosen the handcuffs as they're caning us in the face. Right. Like we're having a conversation and they're throwing a rock. We're yeah. not like we're way past this point. And that's kind of the thing that I, I personally see. And I, I think that, you know, given some of the stuff that we personally talked at Childerberg that I don't want to specifically mention on podcasts, I think that's part like, you know, just kind of the feel I get from you that's driving a lot of this thought process is like, how does this drive some of this is we have to let it go. Yeah. They're going to do what they're going to do because the biggest thing that we have to keep in mind is the people that we're trying, that we can talk to, we're not going to like walk up to Eric Holder. We're not going to walk up to Barack Obama and convince them that we're right. Nine times out of 10, they probably agree a lot closer to what we believe than what's truly out there. There is just so much more momentum behind the scenes on the nonsense Yeah, that you can impact. So the biggest thing that you can do is like, don't work a nine to five job, have a job that pays you in such a way that you lower your tax, you know, your tax burden to the point of nearly zero, but still increase in your wealth. Teach other people how to do that. How like move your money into, you know, things that the government can't directly touch, succeed or secede from their system and be comfortable. And then that's, that's as, so hard as, to do though. It is. And, like, and see, and that's that's where Mason I'll push back a little bit on this because I I am I think maybe a little bit more optimistic in this is I do think we can change minds. And and the way that that I believe that you change minds is you find common interests and you learn to frame every interest that everybody has in a way that will lead them toward liberty. I didn't come okay. I didn't come to the libertarian perspective by somebody going like Rothbard says this or whatever. I came to to libertarianism through Bob Barr who's a complete statist, right? It, well, it's these his- it's these marginal incremental movements whereas, you know, to to quote, I can't remember. It's in it's in For New Liberty, but I can't remember who it was that says it in it that Rothbard quotes. But he says, if there was a button on this uh, podium that I could press and it would eliminate the government, I would press it. That doesn't exist. How do well, I convince and, people to live free? And, and and that's the that's the thing to me is I think we're doing the same thing. I am structure trying to structure my life in such a way that it is impossible to deny the success benefits and things that I've succeeded with and build bridges, talk to those people and everything like that. My problem is so much of the the thought process and trying to gear our message and doing all this stuff is detracting from us moving forward personally. Actually and like, doing it in your yeah, life. Like that's the thing like with Tom Woods, it's like, or like, so just take buying, buying a, an investment property. The biggest thing that all of the people who have ever done this, and these are people who are dumber than us. These are people that are smarter than us. These are people who were born with a silver spoon. These are people who were born as waitresses in Detroit making $20,000 a year. The biggest thing that they all say is take the first step. Yeah. So we're taking the first step right now. We're literally having a conversation. We all talked about getting off by a certain time. We've gone way past that. (laughs) 
which is perfectly fine. But we're literally doing part of that. But what are we doing in our own personal lives to improve and better ourselves that isn't geared toward the idea of, and I don't disagree, Jacob, building bridges and coalitions definitely can work in some ways. But I think the biggest thing that we see is like having, like the biggest thing that's made a change in my life is literally like two years ago, I had the worst end of year for my job, which is very important in my job. It's the end of the year process was so bad that I literally spent several thousand dollars investing in the thing that Tom Woods did. I listened to show after show of Jason Stapleton because I thought like with Jason Stapleton, it's not that I think he's an idiot, but I was like, if this guy doesn't have to have a nine to five job, I don't have to have a nine to five job. And I have spent the last two years trying to figure out how to get off the, you know, shit or get off the pot from there. And then I can go worry about trying to fix everything else. And I think that's the biggest thing that we find a lot of these people is like, we're still armchair quarterbacking. Like, well, how do we, how do we succeed? Succeed and then worry about everything else is just my perspective. Okay. Which, so, so how do you, how do you respond to that? Cause then I've got, I've got another question for you, Jacob. Okay. How do I respond to Mason? Yeah. Um, you blithering idiot. No, <laughs> no, I, I don't think so at all. I think we all, I think we all agree yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I don't, are... yeah, I don't disagree with him, but I would say that like, I have a little bit more of a, a strategic mind when it comes to, um, building the coalitions. And that's something I do think a lot about. Mason is definitely very focused on seceding basically and becoming more independent. Whereas like, although I do have my own business and I'm working on a, another business with my wife, uh, that is something that we have in mind. I, I think that's what's amazing about both of you is you kind of have these two different perspectives, but you're both, you're both doing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think for well, me, I, I, for I me, I can't, big, I can't speak I, for Will, but I'm in the, I'm in the middle of the rat race, and I'm just talking about this shit every week. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah and and I, thing, I'm still like, in the rat race as well. You know, I work, I go, I go to my job. I work 40 hours a week, but I did specifically take the step to go from the job that I had when I worked at the same company Mason works at now, which was killing me. Like I was working 55, 60 hours a week at this job, and it was not like casual 55, 60 hours a week. It was I had to be there for these extended periods of time. And I do have the personality where I'm just like, oh, well, this is fine. I, and I'll just grind it out. But then I got married. And I was like, I don't want to be- not a- your wife's position at all. Exactly. <laughs> My wife's just like, no, this sucks. Switch jobs. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and Yeah. And uh, I, think the, I think the biggest difference between you and I, Jacob, is you grew up in a family of five, mm-hmm. all very close in age. Yeah. You had to build coalitions and partnerships to get the family to do what you would want on the weekend because your dad was deployed. It's just your mom. You had to figure out how to get your older sister to do stuff. You had to get your younger sister involved so you could do things until you got completely independent. Yeah. My sister's 14 months younger than me. I really, you know, after a certain point, we really didn't interact as kids. My brother's five years younger than me. He lived his own life. Yeah. yeah. So I've been completely independent of having to build a coalition because my parents let me do basically what I wanted and I never wanted to do anything crazy. Right. When well, I was and I think the other difference that you and I have too is that I was very politically active, whereas you've sort mm-hmm. of always been on the periphery of the movement. And, um, and I was, I was very much involved in a lot of campaigns. I, you know, I ran the Gary Johnson campaign in 2012 in, in Virginia Beach 
And um, I was very involved in, in the Bob Barr campaign, and I ran a lot of campaigns like against the smoking bans and, mm-hmm. and a number of other bans and stuff like that that we had in Virginia Beach. And the first, do you remember the first light rail initiative, Mason? Yes. Yeah, I, like I, I helped out with that campaign to to oppose light rail and things like that. So I I gained the perspective that like, okay, so political activism is is not useful. But well, and like, but I think also like growing up in the church—that's another like, thing too. Yeah, yeah. You you constantly had to, and you got involved in church politics yep. when you were in the Friends. You went to their planning meetings. You have a thing about getting into the nuts and bolts of stuff and still trying to sort it out because I think ultimately you have a Christian perspective yes. of this is all one big family. That's true, yeah, and and, and that's like, that's very true. That's very true, and and so that's sort of what kind of leads us into the Tasting Anarchy show is my my strategy or whatever for the show to impact the Liberty community is this is a a product that lots of people are very 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 passionate about and wine wine mm-hmm. exactly <laughs> they people people care so much about wine it's and, true and for the for those people it also attracts a lot of statists very left wing statists um and your show has proven or proved i'm not sure which one uh, yeah. that that there is a, a heavy influence of the state in each glass of your wine there is yeah and and there's there's good reason to not want that. Yeah. And I think that's super super fascinating. Yeah. And and so Mason and I we do try to present that like we don't hide that we're anarchists. We're not being, you know, shady or anything like that. It, it is very clear what it's our political are to when it's in your title. Yeah, exactly. It, it's very very clear. <laughs> it's very 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 clear what our our political perspective is. But we do attract non-libertarians, non-anarchists, People who are just interested in our wine reviews, and and I've gotten messages and stuff like that on, on through uh, private chats and on emails, and I'm also involved in other uh, wine podcasts and the uh, Texas uh, Growers Associations and the um, Winemakers Associations here, where I, I do talk to these people, and our and our show does have some influence. It's not big enough yet to have a very strong influence, but. I try to make the rounds is that this is something that people have a passion for. And that's sort of what I recognize. I've gone through multiple phases of like, how do I impact the world into thinking more closely to what I think? And the best way to do it is to find a common ground or common interest, not even a common ground. I really don't give a shit about compromising. Yeah. What I do care about is these other individuals care about something that I care about. How do I not libertarian macho flash and how do I go? I yeah. I understand. I understand your perspective. L- let's uh, let's walk through this together, and maybe you can understand my perspective. And more often than not, they'll go. You know what? You're right. A lot of times they'll say you're right, but I still believe this other thing. And, and <laughs> but but the seed is planted, and and the and the great thing about seeds, especially when it comes to wine vines. You plant the seed, and this thing, unless you keep trimming it, this thing grows out of control. And so they are going to have this seed of liberty in their mind when it comes at least to at least the alcohol industry, if nothing else. And this is going to continue to permeate. And hopefully, when they're looking at things like death penalty, or they're looking at intervention in war, or they're looking at any sort of other economic invention, they're going to go like, you know what? This is the same government that prevented me from getting that really great bottle of Cabernet Franc from Bordeaux. Maybe I should think about the unintended consequences of these other actions that I'm supporting. 
and okay, that so- and that's the, that's where I'm trying to get in now is that yeah. that's kind of where I think we can make the greatest impact. I do have other strategy ideas for like the Libertarian Party and things like that, but I don't see those as being as impactful as people building personal relationships with other people and having the long conversation. I, I I love that. I love both of your perspectives, and I think both of them are equally important, honestly, for for advancing what this is and making what we believe as really, truly important for the existence of humans. I mean, in general, right? I mean, this is what this is all about. We want to make the planet better. We want to make human life better. We want to make all of life on Earth better. And we just aren't very good at making that palatable to the average person. Yeah. And I think both of you have unique ideas that are equally important. Yeah. And so, th- so this is going a little bit long, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask a question and I know it's opening Pandora's box a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. But in, th- in, in thinking about all of this, the the climax of this in my mind happened right about the time that the, the shootings happened over the weekend. And I started thinking about, you know what? Libertarians and anarchists uh, are not good at admitting that we do actually have a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a problem. It may not be um, as as pressing as the, the mainstream media, and especially the left, wants you to believe – because the the truth of the reality is if if someone wants to do ma- uh mass destruction and and have mass casualties guns are not the really the best choice right so if you ba- if you ban guns something worse is going to come along you look at the boston bombing it, it it's an absolute miracle that only 3 people died if they had set the, the those backpacks on a table instead of the floor there would have been dozens if not hundreds of deaths yeah There's the 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 way that you create mass casualties is is not really with guns but that's at the center of this discussion and it is a problem and i think libertarians are very bad about saying you know well we we don't want to hear about this problem we want to talk about keeping our guns because that is critical too it's it's important obviously that's why the founders put it in the in the you know in the in the founding documents but we're not very good at admitting that there is a problem and if there is a problem then and, and we believe that the market is the solution, then what is that solution? Mm-hmm. And how do we make that solution not only palatable, but digestible at the same time? We're terrible at that. Um, so uh, how would you respond to that? Am I right or wrong? I mean, am I totally off base? Should we just grab the guns and run? Mm, I, I think that you're correct. Grabbing the guns and, ru- and running is not going to um, – it's, it's just not going to increase liberty. So I, I have this – so I, I used to be very, very involved in the comic book world. The comic book world Jesus. is yeah. more more hobbies. Yep, yep. And the comic book world is extremely left wing. Right. I also have But they a, also love guns. They don't, surprisingly. Like they well How can some they not? Some, some do, but like the, the ones that are very vocal this is actually one of the reasons why I just stopped using Facebook because I just kinda got sick of a lot of the comic book people. It, it's it's so it the comic book world you know, I'm a good person to actually talk about that. This is, um, he's a little bit younger than Mason and me, but this is Dino. So Dino was a little bit younger than I was when I, I first started seeing the comic book world turn from like nerds who just want to like see hot chicks with their tits out to like, uh, this like gender inclusivity stuff and like 
Now Iron Man's a transgendered man who then retransitioned into a female, like like all these weird things like that. So like it, it's they're always trying to do it. that's just not part Iron of, Man. I were a man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> like it was they they they, they, they just so they just so they went off off the rails in my opinion. And I still love comic books, but I just kind of like checked out of that world because it just became like virtue signaling but it's off topic but anyways so i i did have this is this is these are relationships that i've tried to maintain because the long conversation is what changes people's minds and so uh i was semi well respected in the local comic scene because i ran a comic book podcast for several years um you remember the comic kings podcast mason I do. Yeah. So uh, I ran that podcast for a while and it was sponsored by the biggest local comic book shop. So I would show up and people would recognize me and that sort of stuff. And so I would have these conversations with people, long conversations. And because I had relationships with these people, the conversation wouldn't end at, well, you're a racist and you just hate black people or you just want people to get killed and all that sort of stuff. They'd be, they, it would be more like, you know, we disagree with you. Let's, let's hash it out or whatever. And I remember, in the gun conversation, if you can build a rapport with somebody and have some commonality, you can continue a conversation long enough to share stories. Like when I, I, I remember when like one of the first like AR-15 shootings happened and uh, this this guy, Avery, who's a lot younger than me, he posted something along the lines of uh, there's no reason for um, for citizens to have military grade weapons. And, and, and which is a trope that's been running around yeah, Facebook all week. Yeah, by the way. and it and it was and it was running around Facebook eight years ago too. So I don't mean Facebook, but just social yeah, media, just social media and, and in general, digital media in general. Yeah, and so and I, like in my response to Avery was, look, Avery, it's very clear to me that you are a compassionate person and you care a lot about these people, but I also know that you care about minorities and I and that you care about democracy and these other these other things as well. And let me share a story with you. So in the 1960s, and I, and I honestly, honestly, I don't remember what it was now, but in the 1960s, there was this town that was controlled by a bunch of racist sheriffs and they were denying black people to vote and they were, and they were fixing elections and all that sort of stuff. So when people returned from World War II, they, they got their guns together and they joined with the black folks in that, in that municipality and they overthrew their government. And they wouldn't have been able to overthrow that government unless they had weapons equal to that government's weapons. Now you tell right. me is is your belief in democracy more important or is your belief that people should be disarmed more important and his response to that was this is the best argument I've ever heard for people being able to keep their guns. Yeah. And and, and, and honestly that is the argument that a lot of us want to make but it tends mm-hmm. to be uh, you know framed just a not not that eloquently yeah. I guess. Well it's because you know? it's because we get triggered just like everybody else. Sure. And you cannot – you have to set aside your own emotional response and recognize that for the most part – now, there, there are crazies, you know, but for the most part, these are people who are also compassionate. They do not see any other solution because they've been brainwashed. They're also victims of the state. They've been brainwashed sure. their entire life to think that the only solution is the boot of the government. Yep. You have to show them compassion as well and you have to say – I understand that you care about these people. I understand that you are traumatized or you're you're emotionally compromised by the events that have happened. And you're right. These are terrible events. But let's talk through it. 
because I have a very different perspective than you. You respect me. You and you recognize that I care about these people as well. You know I'm not a garbage human being. Yeah. Let's talk about it. And you have but again, you have to start the long conversation. Twitter is not a great place for this because <laughs> the long conversation yeah, it's, really, it's really not. <laughs> no, it's not. And you know, and I also have very very left-wing relatives. My my cousin Sasha and I talk about this stuff all the time and and I'll I'll message him and I'll be like, "Here you know, and I message him about wine stuff a lot. He doesn't really care that much about wine stuff, but he does care about climate change. And so I'll message him and I'll be like, this is something I see going on in the wine industry. Uh, vineyards are moving north. And vineyards that are south are changing the grape varietals that they're growing. And this this does seem to indicate – I don't believe in like the the UN climate models and all that garbage. But I do believe in, in economics and I do believe that for the most part, wine – uh, uh, vine growers, people who grow grapes, they're going to realize what's growing correctly and what's changing in their, in their business over the years. And so I do see there is a trend of things moving north. Uh, now there could be a lot of factors for that. This could be technology. This could be, uh, tastes in the market, you know, a lot of different things, but it's a good conversation opener to talk to my cousin and, and my cousin who, who, care, who cares about those he does, environmental yeah. things. He does care about it. And this is a really great place for him and I to stop. And we've gotten to the point where he's still like a hardcore commie socialist, but we've gotten to the point where we agree on localism. Very cool. Yeah. Very so, cool. so I'm like, look, you dude, you grew up in LA. Now you live in Seattle. What works for Seattle and LA may be different than what works for, you know, rural Northern California where I grew up. And, and he's like, you know what? You're right. And I said, and who who's better who's going to take better care of the environment in rural Northern California? The people who live and work and need those resources and and want to preserve those resources, or people who live in L.A. and just want the water? And this sounds a little bit like you're bleeding into Mason's side of the argument a little bit too mm -hmm. of that that individual action. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you have to get people to agree to allow you to live your life, and and that's kind right. of the thing is you, is you won't be able to live your life if the strong arm of the government is forcing you. And you know what? There's going to be mistakes. So as long as, but if we can get things down to a local level, the mistakes. The this is the same thing as is is uh, the boom and bust cycle. The boom and bust cycle is not eliminated by eliminating the government from the equation. It's just that the boom and bust cycle is localized. And so, so one industry may have had malinvestment and they'll, and, or, or even one company in industry will have malinvestment and they will liquidate and that will enrich the other companies and, and things will adjust and it won't be noticed by the rest of the economy. Whereas. I'm not sure I disagree, but I, mm -hmm. or, or agree, but I, I also don't know if I disagree. I, I don't know if I can disagree. That's, right. that's an interesting argument. I don't know if I've heard that. And, and Jacob and I have had this argument and his, his opinion, and I don't know. I don't have statistical evidence to say he's incorrect. He he sees that the a lot of the industries wouldn't be able to grow to the national size. They won't. Yeah, the they, they, there's no way. Yeah. I mean, and, that's a that's really a, good point. Well, and that's the thing is Rothbard doesn't like if you want to look at it like from an anarchist or uh, from a, you know, Rothbardian perspective, and Rothbard himself doesn't specifically deny that industries could grow to nation size. We don't know. We've never, it's just never been available. But like one of the things that I think is super hard about this entire conversation is the strategy that Jacob's talking about, the strategy that we're always talking about is talking to individual people and finding the few that are receptive. And what we're going up against is always this pithy response. 
ban the guns. Yeah. There's no there's no additional thought necessary. So and my my problem ahead, is yeah. I am never willing to say we have a problem because we don't. The problem is the government has interacted in the market and has stopped us from deploying safety assets correctly. Yeah, but that's I, that's a non-starter. Agree. Yeah, I agree, but it's a non-starter. No, no, it, it, but that's the problem is how do you take that into a conversation? And the best thing that I found is like Jacob's story is simply pithily posting a, a picture of Hiroshima and saying a government doesn't need military weapons either. So I, I want to, I, I agree and disagree. And here, here's where I, first off, I, I agree that, uh, so, so here's where I, I'll disagree at first is, is that we don't sure. have a problem because I think, I think we do, even, even if like the, this gun violence that hits the mainstream media nationally doesn't affect me personally as an individual, it does affect the perception of everyone around me and those ideas do tend to permeate pretty much everything, uh, you know, top to bottom. Well, and and that's the thing is like, but I'll say, I'll say where I do agree is, is I think that you have to meet people where they are. And my, what I'm starting to really understand is you have to find those people. Like you were just saying that are, receptive to it but i think you have to find the people that are receptive within the marketplace because i think the market is the most powerful thing within our our argument Mm -hmm. because i think if you can convince people that you have both a good product and a safe product or 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 a good product and a product that is good you know for the greater good you know be that uh a uh a gun and a safe gun or uh energy and a you know a green energy the, these things that sort of satisfy both market demand and that 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 human instinct to to want something bigger and want to be a part of something that benefits everyone else you can make an, a market decision so it's both individualistic and it's for the greater good mm-hmm. and I, you I start think... to talk to those people that are that are movers and shakers within that marketplace within that industry and, and that's the thing is like my problem with all of this is that just like, so to take the Michael Malice perspective, you're going up against the NPCs. Which is what? Can you just, can you summarize that? Um, so most people are idiots. Okay. Like yep. if you take average intelligence, most people are morons. So most people are not receptive and can never understand our perspective. That's they are yeah. In, I got something to say about that in a minute, Mason. Well, yeah, but like, so I don't necessarily fully agree with Michael Malice. I, I do agree a, with him, but that's why I have something to say about it. But the, and that's the thing is like my problem is I'm not looking for a herd of sheep to flock. You know, I'm not looking to lead a flock of sheep, and the people that the the people that we're trying to get changed. There are 435 people in Congress. Those are the people you want to get changed because they have engineered the situation. So they're the only ones that matter. Right. But then Donald Trump comes along and suddenly it's only the president that matters. And I know that's not lot, that's not consistent on the way it actually happened. You can go back to, you know, Roosevelt. You could go back to Lincoln and show where the presidency has changed and all that stuff. But the biggest problem is we, 
the market doesn't have a problem. The problem is, the government has taken away the means for you to protect yourself efficiently. I, and yeah. how do we convey that? And it's just like, you know, climate change. We have no idea why climate change is happening. No scientists concur, concur. The people that say that there's a, con, you know, con, you know, concur, their own sightings are not, that don't even show that. So saying that, oh, the, like we need green energy. No, we don't. We don't have any idea what we need. We have no idea. We have no functional clue what's going on in the environment. We don't have the math. We don't have the science. The best thing that we could say is we need to study it more. But taking yeah. radical change and forcing the market to do something green or change in some other way isn't appropriate. What and what's amazing say, about that is it, the market is almost ahead of that legislation anyway. Well, like the yeah, market is that, already shifting to solar and and But and, that's the and, thing. And solar is the solars in wind are not any better. They're, in fact, they're worse most of the time because wind doesn't blow. So I would take issue to, with that, but well, the, the solar, we don't have time I mean, to get into yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, like with the problem with like solar voltaic is that it's toxic to produce the solar panels. There are other yeah, but not nearly as toxic as fossil fuels. There's no uh, well, see, well, there's a no there's, there's different advantages to the fossil fuels though. So like portability is is a huge advantage to fossil fuels. It saves hundreds of thousands of lives a year. So the right. so. There, there is, you, you have to decide if you are a humanitarian or if you are not. And, and that's where you have to make the decision. And this is what Mark, so, okay, this is what market signals do. So before we get into something way too deep and yeah. we're pushing two hours, how do you, the, the big question becomes, how does the market become educated enough to make the right decision? Because right now we're, everyone is bombarded with propaganda. I can turn on Fox News and they're yeah. anti-solar, anti-wind. Okay. You can turn on NPR and they're anti-fossil fuel. Right. And everybody has mixed views on, on you know, sure. natural gas and hydrogen and uh, nuclear. Okay, How so, do you educate the market yeah. properly to make that right decision? So I'll give you my kind of like utopian or futurist view or whatever on this because it's a lot shorter and that is that none of that stuff really matters is that Although I'm, I'm still, I'm a crypto skeptic on some degrees. I do think that crypto is going to take over and that's all going to become irrelevant. So you're going to have, you're going to have radical decentralization within the next 20 years. And it, we need to talk off air, by the way. <laughs> you're going to have, you're going to have radical decentralization in multiple technologies, not just crypto. And I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. And it's just going to, a lot of that stuff is going to become irrelevant. But what's really, really important is that we have a very short time frame. To plant our roots and plant our seeds and make sure that we have a network of people who, whether they agree with us politically or not, that there are people who will vouch for us in tough situations because the the world is changing radically, very fast. The governments will not be able to keep up with it. They can't. Yeah, they, there's just no way. And so – but it'll it will cause it will cause a chaotic era and the chaotic era is where you need communities. And so, exactly. uh, that is why, that's one of the reasons why Childeberg exists is that this is to form communities of people who can vouch for each other, that can look out for each other, that even though we're, we're, you know, separated by distance, there is an opportunity for us to, when the shit hits the fan, we'll be like, okay, look, I know somebody who knows crypto very well. I know somebody yeah. who can, who can, who knows, you know, like car, he, he knows, uh, shortwave radio pretty well. So like there's, there's all of these different things. Like I, I can grow plants. I know aquaponics. I can, re I can rebuild motorcycles. I'm in the process of rebuilding one right now. Like, so there's, I know programming. I know all of these different things. Other people know things that I don't know. Mason knows all sorts of things that I don't know and is, a, and is a super genius in totally different areas. 
And this is why you need to build communities. So like the, the long or the short of it is we're, we're very, very concerned with the government and we should be because they're going to try to, they're going to try to, you know, continue to hold that power. Their death rattle is going to be the most dangerous thing that we've ever Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So they're, they're going to be dying and they're going to be, and they're going to be doing their best to hold on to that. And now granted, we can get into conspiracy theories and stuff like that. But as of right now, it seems like they have nuclear weapons, which I think is debatable, but, uh, oh, uh, but. It seems like they do have that, and if they have control of that, then that is in very, very frightening when they're about to die. All right, so let's start the conspiracy theory uh, segment of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so like I think that's no, like, but Mason, kind of, yeah, go ahead and respond. Yeah, I was gonna say I think that's like kind of the perfect positioning because like everything we've talked about, we all agree fundamentally. Yes, we can disagree with you know is fossil fuels better or worse, all of that stuff. But like one of the other things, that, and I think this is like kind of the like Jason Stapleton kind of positioning, and it's very interesting because you know like it's not that I have a problem with Jason Stapleton, but you can kind of see differences in his opinion compared to the rest of ours. Is we don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff. Well, we don't don't leave our one, families. Yeah, one oh, of the big things. Shots fired. <laughs> well. You know, there's a lot of stuff that could go into that. And there's, did you listen to the episode where he kind of describes why those things happened? No. no. Yeah. Good, so good reasons? He, um, Acceptable reasons? Complicated, go, complicated reasons. Complicated reasons, but he didn't go into like why the family specifically fell apart. But given that like he had no other means to make money because of decisions that were financially outside of his ability, and this is the only way he could continue to support a wife who didn't actually work and four children... He did make the best choice he could to mm. for making a, a life adjustment and one that would not involve him shooting himself. So, yes, good decisions. But be, all that being said, you could also argue that fossil fuels don't make any sense. You could argue that photovoltaic don't make any sense and only nuclear makes sense because it's the only thing that doesn't actively produce pollutants directly. But we could, you know, we could go back and forth on all of that stuff. But like the biggest thing is like, like we don't hurt people and we don't take their stuff. So if we can get that message across that our position is always that That's we are not simple. advocating a violence against you and we don't want to take what you own. And you and know, that like, that is – I agree that that is very simple. So it's digestible, but it's also very palatable. Who 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 wouldn't want that, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the that's the thing is like Jacob and I – like Jacob will argue – can argue it from a super high-level position. I will always try to argue it from the nap. Like – we don't take your stuff and we don't try to hurt you. Like yeah. that's all we're at. And then like, so you could look at like, Oh, I don't like suggest fossil fuels because that could theoretically hurt you because yeah. it is hurting you in your opinion as I'm driving around. Well, okay. it, 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 it does. And regardless of, uh, that's one of the great things about, uh, property rights is that if you're in your opinion, you don't want these carbon atoms on your property. It's still trash. Yeah. yeah. It's still a waste product and you're not, providing me some economic means to deal with this displacement. So like we can argue it from all those positions, but like, that's the biggest thing that we always have to get across. And I think that's the first bridge that we always have to uh, get to people. And I think that's Jacob's first bridge when he was talking about like talking to those other people in the comic book industry is, you know, I'm not a bad person. You've yeah. seen all these things I've done to help you. So if we always put forward the position of I'm not here to take your stuff, and I'm not here to, you know, hurt you. Everything else that I'm going to say is based on my opinion on how 
these things are going to interact with that philosophy. Like, yep. I don't want your stuff, and I'm not here to hurt you. So, but yeah, so like All on right. my time, it's like 11. <laughs> I was going to say, I was, I was just yeah. about to say, congratulations. You, we, we have uh, eclipsed the longest episode ever for Peaceful Treason. <laughs> uh, I think we're still short about, of the longest tasting Arnicky. No. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I don't know about you guys, but uh, this, is, this is a long one, but a phenomenal conversation. Lots of good uh, boozy stuff. Lots of in-depth anarchy, libertarian stuff. And uh, some really valuable ideas, I think. And it was interesting to see both of your perspectives clash a little bit, but then also kind of come come back together at the end. I think yeah. I think we all agree. And 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 the point of all of this is that what we believe, what's in our hearts, is um is is good. I think we're good people. What we really want is not only good for our, ourselves, for our families, but for the greater good. And yeah. sometimes it's just really difficult because of those personality types to communicate that. And, and I think that, uh, I think that this episode has, 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 uh, illustrated that, yeah, we do. We are good people. Yeah. Well, and I think this is, is a very, very libertarian, uh, a libertarian idea though, is that like Mesa and I may disagree, but we're going to continue doing the things that we think are best. And that may be what we're both specialized at. So not, not only that, but, to, influence each other as well exactly sure. yeah well and, and you know we've actually we've had a great deal of influence on each other like i've always been and, and i think mason's right this does come from me being from the church and and uh is i have always been very community centric and where i cannot find a community i will create a community so that's cool mm -hmm. that's cool um and and that's when i got here the dfw i there was nothing readily at hand that was like these are the people i want to be around and so i made it and then i and then you know from that car and I made Childeberg. So it was like, look, we want, I want these things where I live. And, but I do have, you know, first responsibilities as well. And let me just like, I'll close on this one item since we're, we're running so long. But, um, to Mason's point about like most people are idiots. That's true. I have a lot of family members who are dummies. But I receive texts daily of people asking me for political. And they don't, do they listen to your show? Uh, no, they don't, but, but they do, but they'll ask me directly. They, I will, I receive daily political questions from them where they, where they defer to me as a political authority. Wow. Even though, hmm. even though they're mostly like kind of neocon type people. Knowing they'll disagree, really. They'll, they'll disagree, but they will, but they, like, so even both my parents, who I don't think are dumb people, is they will ask me questions and they'll be like, well, you probably know because we trust that you've done the research. And they don't have, mm, they don't, very cool. yeah, and they don't have time for this. The same thing though with religious stuff is that I come from a like fun, fundamentalist Baptist background and I'm a Quaker and I, I to this day receive daily text messages from all four of my sisters and uh, occasionally from my parents asking me religious questions. And I'll say, look, this is, this is the perspective that you guys rate that mom and dad raised me with, or in case when I'm talking to my mom and dad that you guys raised me with, um, I understand that perspective, but this is not the perspective I have now. This is the perspective I have now, and these are the reasons why. Here's biblical examples for it, but you also know that I don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. So, like, here's other reasons why I believe that this is the spiritual guidance God gives us. And so, and they'll be like, huh, okay, that's interesting. That gives me something to think about. And whereas I don't think that they have necessarily, I think some of my, my sisters do, and, and, and my parents certainly are very intelligent people. Um, it's just that they, 
they don't have the same perspective I have where they will take a step back and have deep thought and just kind of sit in silence and think. And that's, that's always, that's, that's the Quaker in you, right? That, that's the Quaker in me. And, the, but it's also always been my thing where it's like somebody gives me a point. It doesn't make sense to me, but I've, but, and, and whereas I may immediately disagree, I will always agree to think about it. That, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of been my thing. Not just the last half of this, this episode we're recording, but, but really thinking about certain challenging things and not trying to respond quickly. Mm hmm. And, you know, that's great that you've actually got that relationship with your family because, you know, my family is just we sweep all the differences under the rug and and just have this kind of fake interaction (laughs) around each other. And our 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 Thanksgivings are are a lot of fun. Like, actually, I I went, we went, it's been a long time since I've been to Thanksgiving. We went last year. Uh, It's been, it's been about nine years since I went to a family Thanksgiving and all my extended family was there as well. And it was, it was amazing to like find out that, a lot of my extended relatives were interested in a lot of the same things that were going on that I was aware of. So like yeah. there was a ton of people who I would not have expected it to have that were really, really into Jordan Peterson. So I was like, this is fascinating that there is a, there's like a cultural movement going on. And, and whereas I don't agree with Jordan Peterson on a lot of stuff, I, I find him fascinating. He's a very interesting person. And I was like, this is a awesome opportunity where I know a lot of what Jordan Peterson says they're really into Jordan Peterson. I can introduce these other libertarian philosophers and other ideas right now, and that will expand their palette and make them more persuaded to the individualistic. You know, a lot of what Jordan Peterson is, is Jordan Peterson says is very. Um, it's priming to get people ready to be hyper individualists like we are. Yeah, you got. We got to build credit. Build cred up with the people closest to us. Yes, yeah, exactly. I got a, I got a text today from one of my brothers. I don't even remember, but apparently months ago I ranted about the open conspiracy theory that is Jeffrey Epstein to him. Oh, right, really? Wow. So he he's like, dude, you told me all of this, you know, however long ago. What 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 is going on? And now, you know, I've got, I guess, an ounce of conspiracy threat or, <laughs> or cred with him. Yeah, because, because this is all or was briefly in the mainstream it's quickly also been swept under yeah. the rug and and that's but, that's really that's the importance of keeping the conversation open this is and this is def you know this is the last thing i'll say and you guys can close it is this this all opened up when walter block's conversion story was he was a hardcore socialist he went to a a meeting that had ayn rand and uh rothbard at it and he introduced himself as a socialist who wanted to debate. And I can't recall who it was, but it was it was somebody who was big in the libertarian movement at the time. And he said – and that guy said, I'm willing to debate you, but you have to promise me that the conversation won't end here. Oh, wow. And, huh. yeah. and now we have – and now we have Walter Block, who has converted. That was Walter Block. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. That was Walter. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. I've not heard that story. Yeah. Yeah. So he ha- he's done innumerable things for the liberty movement as far yeah. as as economics and philosophy goes. And this is somebody who started out as a hardcore socialist. Actually, he went to school with Bernie Sanders. He and Bernie Sanders were classmates. Um, and they were of similar persuasion. And it just took one person to say, let's have a long conversation. That gives me so much energy, I think, for for what we do. And you guys, you guys mentioned that, that you – uh, it was before we started recording. We won't talk about the numbers of our, the downloads of our shows, but mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, I, I think it, regardless of the size of whatever your content creation follow, following is, um, uh, you, you know, 
uh, peaceful treason or, or tasting anarchy or, or anybody else, uh, I think it can be discouraging. But if you can just influence one person, I think to me it makes it all worth it. Yeah, you know, it it, it definitely um, does. Especially if it it's like it's ripples on a pond. Like you'd never know yeah. how far that ripple's going to go. Mm-hmm. Just got to get uh, Bernie Sanders to listen to a few episodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we could do another two hours on uh, Bernie Sanders on Joe Rogan. I uh, I'm sure we could. Yeah, I, 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 I I'm like 15 minutes into that, and I'm already like my eyes are stuck in the back of my head. Same here. I was I was struggling so hard to get through 20 minutes of it. <laughs> I just refused to listen to it. Oh, yeah, I'll skip yeah. that for sure. Well, yeah. guys, thank you so much for this. Uh, of course. Like I said, this is a uh, this is definitely the longest episode that we've ever done. I think it was well worth the list it's going to be well worth the listen um and uh hopefully it uh, introduces you to a, a few new people and vice versa and uh, we can keep this flame burning that's the that's the purpose of all of it and uh i can't wait of course to uh grow our friendship it was amazing meeting you guys at childerberg one can't wait to see you again at childerberg two Yes. Um, Childerberg dose. Yeah, chili dose. Hashtag chili dose. I use that uh, that hashtag almost weekly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> tell uh, everyone where they can find you and your projects, and uh, and then we'll wrap. All right, Mason, why don't you do, do the Tasting Anarchy, and I'll do the Childerberg. Sure. So you can follow us on Tasting Anarchy at um, tastinganarchy.com. You can also follow Jacob on Twitter, Tasting Anarchy um, on Twitter, because that's Jacob running the account, even though I started it. You can also email us at tastinganarchy at gmail.com. All right. And Childerberg, Childerberg.com. Um, it's going, the 2020 Childerberg, Childerberg Dose is the 23rd to the 26th, uh, March, April, May. Yeah. So May 2020, 23rd to the 26th. Um, it's in conjunction with the Libertarian National Convention. So if you are planning to attend the Libertarian National Convention, drop those squares and come and hang out with us. And, uh, yeah. but even if you want to attend the Libertarian National Convention, we will have the chill dozer van going back and forth, uh, <laughs> between, between the events every, every, uh, three to four hours. And you'll be able to, uh, you know, sample both the libert, the, like the anarchist festival style and the sort of structured libertarian style. And I think that's, that's going to be, um, a great opportunity for everybody. Uh, you can also follow it at Childerberg on Twitter. And I think that's it. Uh, there's Childerberg t-shirts. That's how we fund the event. Um, you can also yes. donate at Childerberg.com. So uh, check all that out. And if you didn't listen to episode 63 of the Peaceful Treason podcast, we uh, made a commitment to a wiffle ball game or a tournament, possibly, if it gets big enough, Ooh. at Childerberg Dose. All right. Well, we've got, so we've we, got, we've got a great, uh, we've got so much space that you'll be, you'll definitely yeah. be able to do that. Awesome. We, we already have, I don't know, half a dozen people committed to the, the wiffle ball game. So great. That's all it takes. Nice. You only need three on that's three. That's all you need. Yeah. So we're going to have a little bit of wiffle ball happening there. Maybe we could have like a, uh, you know, uh, the, the Ch- Childerberg alum versus the Libertarian Party. Oh, man, that would be really game. great. Yeah. How, how insane would good. that be? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we, we'll be there. Uh, we'll, I mean, I guess you're probably unconfirmed at this point because of your work restrictions, but I'm definitely going to be there. I know you guys are going to be there. So anybody out there listening wants to meet any of us four, uh, we'll be, uh, we'll be in Texas next year this time. So, yeah. uh, as always, you can find, uh, our podcast at peacefultreason.com. And our, uh, we, we typically interact with people mostly on Twitter at Peaceful Treason. Uh, we're also available on uh, Facebook if you just search us for uh, Peaceful Treason. 
And then our podcast is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and uh, various other places on your podcatchers. And uh, so, yeah, so support us and uh, support this idea, these ideas that we've been talking about this in, in this episode. Keep that flame going and that, sort of that positive energy, I think, that, that we're talking about. I think we need to start latching on to the ideas that we are uh, we, we don't just want to grab our guns and run, right? We don't want the elderly to die. You know, we, we, we don't want the, the world to shrivel up and die. That's not, that's not our perspective. We just think that maybe there's a better way to address these issues. And, uh, sometimes we're uh, a little autistic in the way that we communicate them. Uh, but we're working on that. Yeah. You know? Yep. That's uh, right. And that's, that's really the, that's really the, what this all boils down to. Try a different kind of beer for a change. Yeah. <laughs> well, unless, unless you're unless you're going to branch out from Natty Light to what I think the kids are calling Natter Day, like just bran- bran- branch out a little further. Than That's that. a good point. Yeah. Don't, don't go to Natter Day. <laughs> All right, yeah. all right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, that's all. Uh, that's all we got for this week. All right. Have a great night. Knock down windows and turn down door. Drinking half gallons and calling for more. Drinking wines, pour you to drink wine. Wines, pour you to drink wine. Wines, pour you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drinking wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Wine, for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willie's Den. He wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drink a wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel. Have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Somebody's fifth and somebody's fourth. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine. Wine for you to drink wine.